Hello, everybody, and welcome to some interseason goodness from us, the Sequelizers. I am your host, as always, Jack Chambers, and joining me, also as always, it's Matt Stockton. At the tone, turn the page. God, did you, did you ever listen to those things as a kid? Of course I did. I, I yeah. absolutely did. That's how I know <laughs> what the original lyrics to Arabian Nights were at the start of Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> did you have the, what, audio... Book. Yes, I was a believe audio tape yes, back in the, the six day. Book, uh, when I was six years old and it was an audio book tape thing and it Amazing. talks about cutting off people's hands because you don't like their face or something. And it's like, whoa, better change that lyric. It's quite racist <laughs> as fuck. <laughs> Google it. So we're doing an episode on audio tapes. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, we're, we're really spinning off. It's very niche. Uh, <laughs> yeah, very niche. And of course, joining Matt and I, also as always, it's Tim Matum. Books! that's <laughs> him uh, tim, tim i was this close to just shouting the word books so we look fucking stupid then is, wouldn't is we this, <laughs> is this just a parody of pigs, pigs. Like matt did before so we're not actually talking about audio tapes or pigs or car journeys as children or car journeys <laughs> as children well we, we might get into that never that, know. that is never very, know. that is very possible mm. because this week we're talking about novel to film adaptations. And this topic was selected by one of our executive producers on Patreon. Our executive producers are of the highest of the tiers of Patreon, but you can join us on patreon.com slash sequelizers at a variety of different tiers for a variety of different benefits and rewards, including ad-free episodes, early access, discounts on merch, exclusive merch, live streams, we do monthly live streams now in 2021. Come mm. and join us. It's hilarious. We play games and seed a particular director's <laughs> career and then bracket it all out and, and battle it out and very controversially pick what we think is the best film and all the comments argue with us and it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. You also get completely exclusive bonus episodes because we're in the interseason stuff because we're good to you and you, you pay us for it so it makes sense. And if you're at the highest tiers. You can even be an executive producer. You can get your face drawn by Mr. John Scarrett. You can even select an episode for a season and an interseason as well. And that's very much the case with this episode, which has been selected by one of our executive producers, Mr. Stuart Main. Look at that subtle off-white colouring. The tasteful thickness of it. Oh my God. It even has a watermark. And of course, we do have other executive producers. Their selections will be coming up later on in the show, including one selection from Mr. Jonathan Firth-Clark. Is he amiable? Is he handsome? He's single. You already know him from the finale of the last season, his selection, Mr. Mike Salvia. I watched as the criminals who tied Albert to a wall threatened to cut off his finger and send it to his father as evidence of his abduction. <laughs> the boy's reply to all this was, do your worst. The man known as Xenos. Their early work was a little too new wave for my taste. But when sports came out in 83, I think they really came into their own, commercially and artistically. Mr. Tyler Rogers. From the first moment I met you, your arrogance and conceit, your selfish disdain for the feelings of others made me realize that you were the last man in the world I could ever be prevailed upon to marry. And last, but certainly not least, Andy Steen. We should call him Zatara. Sounds fearsome. It means driftwood. 
<laughs> if you'd like to get a shout out like these guys, if you'd like to be able to pick an episode for us, you can vote on episodes as well. It's all kinds of stuff. You can support us on patreon.com slash sequelizers. That is the place to go for all the bonus stuff, all the rewards, and all the access to being able to tell us what to do, basically. Nice and simple. Only fans. <laughs> <laughs> That's the next step. That's the next step. The inevitable yeah. next step. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into the topic, shall we? It's selected, as I mentioned, by Stuart Main, our executive producer. Should we get into talking about some, some novels that have been adapted into films? So we're going to obviously talk about, as we usually do on these interseason stuff, we're going to talk about the concept as a whole, the kind of the genre, the 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 idea of good adaptations, bad adaptations, films that changed from the book to on going on screen and all that kind of stuff. Cover the topic as general, and then we'll also have some specific deep dives into some selections by the three of us as well towards the end of the episode. So you're going to get a little bit of coverage of everything for this topic, as you usually do on this interseason malarkey that we do. Mr. Stockton. What up? Over to you, as our resident film expert on this film you've, podcast. You've always got an opinion. You have you have things to say about other things. I can't read! <laughs> um, <laughs> no, okay, so I, I feel that there is a very, very clear transition between uh, novels and cinema, in the sense that books have been... Okay, a really stupid sentence here. Books have been around for a very long time. For, you know, human history, writing is a huge thing. Oral tradition, yes, you get a lot of stories being handed down that kind of way. But, you know, writing it down specifically ensures that the author's exact text is preserved, unlike something like, you know, Beowulf or whatever. Anyway, so you, you have... <laughs> and Beowulf will probably come up later. So you have that... Yeah, we have those side of things. But then this transitions to when you get to a live performance i.e. the theatre. And a lot of cinema, especially early cinema, transitions from the theatre very naturally. The idea of just put the camera where the audience would be and make a box unit and you, all the production's the same sort of thing. So plays, and again, books being adapted onto, into play and for stage and that kind of thing makes complete sense. And, 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 um, and cinema just has that inevitable similarity so for, for in the very early days of cinema obviously you have a lot of unique scripts a lot of original things biopics and original historical things are still there obviously but then you see things like alice in wonderland and i mean like you know as a silent film sort of thing and you think that, that yeah that makes complete sense because it's there is a limit <laughs> this is where it gets a bit controversial as as a former bookseller myself uh, i'm going to say something quite <laughs> controversial books have limitations now I'm immediately going to throw that statement in the bin because, <laughs> of course, I was say, of yeah. course, books don't have limitations. The limits are your imaginations, yeah. Matthew. <laughs> if a good writer can do anything, and I, I, I do genuinely mean that in any language, can it's 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 fascinating what what literature is and what it can be used for in in all capacities and all functions, and it's evolved perfectly. I mean, it, it, despite being you know with us for what, effectively like a thousand years or more, the idea that we can still find new ways to convey a story is, is fascinating in that medium specifically. Now, having said that, the one thing we can't do is have a uniformity, an agreed opinion. Yes, we know this character is named 
fucking Horatio or whatever the character might be called. But when I, when when the person is reading it, they will picture themselves. I mean, a great example, which we'll have to come back to uh, just because of one of my picks later, uh, Alexandre Dumas. He wrote, uh, among other things, Three Musketeers. Now, yes, it's a period piece. Yes, there are certain historical figures in there. But Alexandre Dumas was black. He was a black Frenchman. And I, I don't have any doubt in my mind that when he's writing D'Artagnan and... Uh, Portos and Alsace and everyone else in that story. Yes, okay, you're picturing the your your fellow countrymen, and everybody casts them as white people. But if you are happen if you happen to be of a different um, ethnicity or gender or anything, you put a lot of yourself in there. So of course he might have seen them as all, you know, the same skin tone as himself. And so for example, if I was to say I'm going to now make a film version of the Three Musketeers. Whatever I put in there is final. It's not open for interpretation. Maybe the story is, maybe the elements are, but the visual elements are concrete and cemented, whereas in a book... Especially in terms of, and this has been a, obviously a hot topic over... Sure. As we become more aware of... Sorry. As we become aware of more like important social issues that are discussed in media over the last, you know, 50 years or whatever it is. Yes. Interpreting like race and gender of a character where the author can leave it purposefully ambiguous or or even more simply and, and less like bigger picture you can have a character not be revealed mm. and sp potential spoiler alerts for game of thrones i guess mm. in a in a weird sort of way there's a character in the books that people think is the hound and the hound hasn't died called the grave digger mm -hmm. this is not a spoiler this is a theory this is not confirmed yeah he straight up just shows up in the tv show and you're like oh great yep yeah, <laughs> no ambiguity there. He's the only like eight foot tall Scotsman. Yeah, like that with half a burnt face. You get that like a man in a dark cloak, or that like oh, you just turn a different name or write ambiguously. You can get away with that yes. kind of stuff. And then the whole controversy when there was a woman of color played Hermione Granger on stage. That's correct. He was like, yes. oh, well, Hermione mm. might be black in the books. It's like mm, mm, we're not going to get into J.K. Rowling. That's no. a whole other discussion. <laughs> But the, you have room there for different interpretations and casting people of different races, like you said, kind of finalizes something. And you're either way, you're either making a statement by ch consciously changing it, mm -hmm. whether it's gender or sexuality or identity or race or whatever it is, or you're sticking with the original or the original is left purposefully ambiguous and you have to kind of then settle on something or, mm -hmm. or kind of confirm something. It's a really interesting thing that you kind of can't avoid when going to screen in those ways, and that's a that's an interesting way of looking at it, I think. And there is a very uh, a point of no return because once I say the character Snape, I know we, we actually have to talk about Harry Potter because it's one of the biggest adaptations. <laughs> but or, or let's, let's let's take Lord of the Rings. Once I say Aragorn, for most people, they're going to picture Viggo Mortensen, and you can't yeah. go back to the book and then say I can't fucking not see Viggo anymore. Shit. In the same way that. Whenever an adaptation comes out, people say, uh, oh, oh, here's a character I love from the book. Oh, th this character's great. And then they see them on film and say, I don't think they talk like that. I don't think they look like that. That's not how I saw them in my head. So all it said was a gaunt man with a long sort of face and a, and a very thin beard. That could be fucking Jafar. That could be anything. That could be... It could be Matt Stoughton. <laughs> it knows? could be me. That's the whole point. It's, and if, there, <laughs> if you don't describe much, which most books tend to do... 
think there's an old trope, which is the laziest thing you could do is have a character walk to a mirror and describe himself. Like, <laughs> I got up in the morning, I looked myself in the mirror. My face was... I saw my blue eyes yeah. and my <laughs> brown hair. And... So many flecks of disappointment in my grayed beard. And you're like, okay, we go, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, it's, it, you do what you can trope-wise. Now, obviously, film has a way of showing these things and hiding these things as well. But there is a very distinct, once it is cemented, sometimes you can't see past that. Yeah, I think, uh, for me, the crucial difference between novels and film is the level of ambiguity that you can have in mm -hmm. a novel and the level of subjectivity that you can have. Because, you know, comparing the two different kind of mediums, they're obviously incredibly different. One is primarily a visual, the other one primarily text. Yes. You can fit a lot more story in a novel than you can in a film due to time constraints but equally you know you you kind of uh with a film the the passage of time is controlled by the filmmaker whereas with a mm. reader essentially if you put down the book and then come back you know six months later then there's to a certain degree you're controlling the passage Correct. of time yeah. there yeah. and novels are much better at putting us inside someone's head oh yeah that's something I'll definitely be discussing later with yeah. one of my picks. <laughs> and it's something that films still struggle with. You know, you can have something, you know, uh, and there's a reason something like Rashomon was so revolutionary, where it was like suddenly this idea of like, oh, okay, like we're seeing the same events from different people's point of view and they're different because different people see things differently. But But that's still quite difficult to do on film, whereas books can do it effortlessly and have, it's very hard to do an unreliable narrator in film. Oh, I was about to use those exact words. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. And, uh, you know, the when novels first emerged um, in the kind of 17th, 18th century as, as, as a format for absorbing, absorbing written word, they were actually, um, as with most newly emerging, like, mediums they were seen as incredibly scandalous mm, they were mm. seen as oh women shouldn't have access to this yeah. because they're so good at putting you into a certain frame of mind if you sat if you sit there and read and and get absorbed into a book it's so good at putting you in a certain frame of right mind that women's poor brains won't be able to cope <laughs> and they'll you know if they read a book about someone doing a murder well they'll just go out and do a murder um it's kind of how video games are seen in well last, exactly in, yes. in this generation yeah. really isn't yeah, it? Like, yeah. The, the, the moral panics over new technology or new yep. formats are, ne are never there. It's the same argument that's been going over and over again. But there is there is something to be said about the way that a book can put you in a situation that feels incredibly personal um, and roots you in the emotional uh, status of of the writer. Whether it's been whether it's a first person narrative or even. Uh, a third person narrative you can you can still latch onto those things and because we're used to kind of um you know if someone if someone tells you about a situation just in everyday life you are aware that they are telling you their version of events whereas if you see something happening you're like okay well this is my objective reality mm. you know obviously there's there's you know you can get into the whole what is the objective truth and all that kind of thing and yeah yeah yeah, yeah and how we all see slightly different versions yeah. and yeah. do we all see purple. the same <laughs> um, blue for the sky as well? yeah yeah but that is kind of the fundamental difference in between when, when you're reading a book you are aware that it has been 
written to a certain extent. An author has made those choice of words to have that effect on you. Whereas with film, it's a lot easier, depending on the filmmaker, of course, to just accept that as, oh, this is the given reality. You know, especially with something like a documentary, you're thinking like, well, I'm just watching things happen. You you tend to think less about, oh, okay, well, a, a director and an editor have made choices here and the, yeah. the soundtrack is, is influencing me. There's, I think... There's, that is kind of, to me at least, one of the fundamental differences. Again, not to go off on a tangent, but yeah, I think especially with documentaries or like based on a true story type stuff, and there is a literal way that seeing actual people tricks our brain into thinking, well, this is real. This is, you know, mm. you know you're reading words when you're reading words and your brain never thinks, well, these little words turn into people and then people in real <laughs> life. And, you know, your brain is trained to recognize faces and movements and body mm. language and all that kind of stuff. Do you pick up on subconsciously in real life, on screen, on stage, whatever it is? And I, there must be some sort of, yeah, I'm sure there's studies into this of how we interpret. Like if you absorb the same piece of information, information on screen through like live action, for that phrase, and then reading it in a book, there must be a, a different way of the brain comprehending the information and even with audiobooks and stuff, which is how I consume most of my novels and, and stuff these days, just because I don't tend to sit down and read. I'll be working or, you know, doing housework or whatever. I'll listen to podcasts. I'll listen to audiobooks and all that kind of stuff. I wonder if I'm processing the information because I'm more of a audio learner mm. than I mm. am a visual learner. Do I then process the information? Would I remember it more if I sat down and read it? Would I relate to this character more if I actually read it rather than having someone read it to me, which is then causes that level of dissociation and things like mm. that? And then there's that level of dissociation again, as you said, Tim, because with a film, it tends to go through dozens, hundreds of people's different hands and interpretations, whether that's the choice of the cinematographer, the editor, the director, the actors, the costume designers. There's all these choices that come together and be like, why is that character wearing a blue shirt? Yeah. Like, he, would, he would never wear I read the book he would never wear a blue shirt but the costume designer was like well, it doesn't fucking matter yeah. he's green or blue who cares mm. like, well no he would never wear blue I was like yeah and it's a weird way of like interpreting the same story in different ways I think the, the perfect example for me is how we talk about ambiguity and stuff and how it didn't translate for me mm. is Cloud Atlas uh, by David Mitchell okay. mm. I really enjoyed the book and it purposefully leaves things ambiguous. The whole point of it, again, not to spoil things, but we're going to get into spoilers in this episode. People like it, it ties together different characters through generations and through different stories through like birthmarks and tattoos and, and thematic similarities and all this kind of stuff. And it's hinted at in the books and briefly mentioned, or she noticed something on his shoulder and it never says it explicitly or something like that. In the film, people just have a big old face tattoo and you're like, well, obviously that's Tom Hanks. Yeah. Because that's fucking, that's, I know that guy's supposed to be Asian, but that's clearly fucking Tom Hanks in prosthetics. <laughs> and there's this real weird, like, I never got lost in that film in the same way I got lost in the book because the book is kind of purposefully disorientating and confusing and, and trying to kind of merge all of these things into one larger narrative and larger theme. Whereas the film is like, and now you're in Neo-Tokyo. Yeah, <laughs> and now you're in prehistoric times. I think what's going on? Why is she dressed like? Is that Tilda Swinton? What the fuck is going on here? Like, and and again, I think recognizing faces and stuff, you get that moment. I especially like when you see a film where I don't recognize any of the actors. They're all unknowns, and I feel like you can often get lost in that a bit more 
when I'm not sat there going, oh, it's him. Yeah, it's the guy from the thing. Oh, there's Tom. Oh, there's Tom Hanks. Good old Tom <laughs> Hanks. He's shown up. Like when you're able to lose yourself in that way, it feels more like a book to me, if that makes sense. When you have these unknown things and it feels less like a bigger production of like, oh, yeah, it's those guys. Oh, oh you, you can tell it's directed by Ridley Scott. You can tell it's directed by Steven Spielberg because they chose this shot. He always does that lighting choice. Oh, Spielberg and his bloody spotlights or whatever. Like, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's fascinating that even though, like as I was saying, I think film is is better at making you feel like this is a an objective reality. There's more th- because because that's true. There's more things in film that can then shove you out of that feeling. Like the uncanny <laughs> valley is a very is a very oh, visual yeah, phenomenon. Very much so. You can't it's you can't get that through writing really beyond someone trying to describe the feeling of when you visually. <laughs> experience the uncanny valley <laughs> and the guy turned um, round and he sort of looked like grand moff tarkin but not really and his, yeah. lip, and his lips his lips didn't move quite right like there's no yeah there's no way of translating like bad cgi into yeah and, and similarly there's no there's there with a novel you're never going to get the experience of when you watch a film and then an act, a certain actor turns up and you have all the preconceptions that you associate with that actor you know if tom cruise suddenly shows up in a film you go oh it's tom cruise even though he may be playing a character, you're bringing all the baggage that you have associated with that actor. Whereas with a book, you know, hopefully, you know, that you're not kind of going in unless unless you're reading like a, you know, oh, it's Sherlock Holmes, but he's a sea captain in the 23rd <laughs> century. Well, then you're bringing in your knowledge of Sherlock Holmes. But, you know, that that's still the character rather than the actor. I think... Well, there are two points here, but one to, to sort of segue from Tim's is that there are definitely things that there are strengths on both sides. Um, you can take time to go over a couple of things with with books. You can read a sentence again and again and again because it's fascinating, because it's interesting, because you didn't really understand it. You want to check a word, what it means, all kinds of stuff. Whereas a film goes at a pace of its choosing, choosing, sorry. On top of that, I think it's, I mean, I know that the books can be scary. I know I've had a lot, read a lot of, of fiction that sort of scared the shit out of me. Uh, House of Leaves is pretty fucking terrifying um, and very weird in how it's, how it's presented on page. But horror, just a jump scare, something being thrown at you that visually goes, oh, fuck. That, you don't get that in books because it's a slow burn. Even if it's something terrifying in a book, it still takes a while to build up because you're being described to you. Similarly, action. Action, as in like from a car chase to a to a bomb being diffused because of music we, tension. Cuts. We talk about it all the time in terms of our pitches, like your Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, yes, or yes. or <laughs> Tim's Mortal Kombat, or my Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Mm. It would just be, like, and here's a great fight scene. Assume the next seven minutes of screen time is a kick-ass fight scene. A sword swiping, <laughs> and then someone, and then we move on. Yeah, a sword swiping past someone's face. And you just get a and then turn it backwards and then giving you a look like, holy fuck, that was close. In two milliseconds, the audience mm. goes, oh, in a book, it takes a time to describe it. Now, to be fair, you can use both to your advantage. You can just take time to describe it. I was going to say, I think that's partly because, uh, just to round things off, in its construction and the way it's absorbed, film is a shared experience. Yes, okay, most people watch a film on their own, sure, fine, but they are designed in theory, first and foremost, to be watched with an audience of potentially multiple people in a cinema. That's that's the, the key goal, to get as many people watching as possible. And from the actor, director, writer, cinematographer, everyone else involved, it's a, it's a lot of people's vision. Whereas a book, most often than not, is one person 
talking to one person. It's that oral history again. It's that shared narrative. I'm going to tell you something. Sit down. I'm telling you this. And that's why it's more terrifying, sometimes more engrossing than a film, because you are the oh, the sole person. It almost feels got. more personal, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very voyeuristic because you're the only one in it. Now, obviously, people say, well, hang on, I've sat there and read a book with my wife or I've talked about, my, you know, with my friends, we have a book club. It's like, yes, but you're not there on the exact same line at the exact same time absorbing it in the exact same way because you read speed differently. Some people speed read, some people um, really mull things over. Some people just go, oh, there's a lot of Russian names in this. You're going to be from now on, and you're I'm not going to bother pronouncing that. There's K and Q and Z, <laughs> and then that'll be your names forever. Yeah, so that's what you are. So, th- Or you get words you've never said out loud that you read, and you're like, apparently that's a word. I probably never need to say out loud. And then you realise you need to say out loud. Super Cali Fragi. I don't know. I give up. Uh, weirdly enough, even in simple things, uh, Jack and I had a conversation about this fairly recently. Where I've been saying Atreides, and it's for most people Atreides. Atreides, yeah. And I'm like, you pronounce what? the I. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm like, that? Because that's the problem. <laughs> when you read the thing, you read your own narrative. And the problem is, again, when you're stuck it, with it from your teenager. That's the name of the family from Dune, by the way. Yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, Frank Herbert's Dune, which will be also was David Lynch's Dune and will also be Denis Villeneuve's Dune. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's the point. In character names, how they're pronounced, a, a good example. Well, there are lots of examples basically that where things have been re reworded, repronounced. Whether it's, I can't think of anything, but it's mostly just names, and you think to yourself, "Oh!" And science fiction is and fantasy is a bastard for it. And you go, especially when they make up words. Oh yeah, if you get fantasy stuff where it's like, okay, so the author is a huge. His, let's take like Tolkien mm-hmm. as a perfect example. I know we already touched on Lord of the Rings, but tough. He's a linguist, and he built. You know, Elvish is sort of based on Welsh and a few other things, and there's all these different translations and and all this kind of stuff. And then the films had to take that, like with Christopher Tolkien's blessing mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. experts who are linguists of Dwarvish and Dwarvish and Elvish because they're functioning. It's a, language, it's a whole. Th- it's a functioning language because Tolkien mm. was a nerd, <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> wow, that you actually have definitive pronunciations of words that don't exist and words don't exist until they exist and it's like well, well yeah, yeah that, 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 that is a language so, yeah sure we talked about this on exactly yeah. So, yeah, the, but, yeah we did uh i think uh, uh, john milton invented the word pandemonium to describe the palace and hell uh, in in paradise lost paradise lost there we go this is where you end up with and this is a bit not a transition but definitely a point we need to make here people often say you can't make that book into a film you could never do that. And Paradise Lost, yes, it's, okay, it's technically a poem. I, I, I always think partly, yes, you're right, of course, that'd be really difficult, but I don't think it's fucking impossible. I think you could do it. I think you could always do something. You, technology changes. There's always ways to show these things through the medium if you're inventive enough, if you are not binding yourself to a word by word. And that, that, this is the key point here about adaptations. You will never have a word for word adaptation of a book. Because a lot of it, even if you're doing like a Terence Malick, everything that, or, or again, Frank, um, David Lynch's June, a lot of it is like internal thoughts. Was I going to be the one? What's that? <laughs> the tooth. Yes, the tooth. Of course, the tooth. Like rather than just having this <laughs> internal dialogue, I know what we'll have is we'll have that, you know, whispered loudly, narrated in their head. Oh, the tooth. I'm like, oh, great. The spice. And it's just, 
it makes sense, but it's it's a directive, you know, artistic license, sort of cho a choice made. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But you have to abandon a lot. A lot of characters get melded into one character. Three, four different people, you'll do. You're one of those, you're fine. We don't have time to get through all this stuff. We need to take what's the key story. So all the nuance, all the subplot, all the um, extra things that people tend to really love and remember about books films have to go i'm really sorry we're gonna have to fucking streamline this we've got 90 <laughs> minutes mate i'm yeah. so sorry i know your favorite subway sandwich is all these things but all we have is lettuce <laughs> so when i say what salad do you want you just say i'll have the lettuce please because that's all we fucking have time for <laughs> yeah i think it's because the the whole argument of you could never make a film of that generally means like sometimes it's a technological thing of like you know oh you know how could you make a film of you know June with all the you know armies and the sandworms and stuff mm, it's like well mm. you know technology cgi catches up mm. but sometimes it literally means like well in order to accurately represent this this film would be 18 hours long <laughs> um and you know there'd be several deeply experimental sections that would completely alienate the audience you know often you could never make a film out of that means you could never make a successful film out of that very true you could never true. make a profitable film out of that yeah. and i think it's interesting that as television has got more prestige in the last, you know, 20 years, it has become, there's a lot more book to TV adaptations That's because true, yes. TV gives you just simply more time to explore certain things, you know, and, you know, can you imagine trying to make Game of Thrones and do like a season, you know, even if you just did like, okay, we're going to turn the first book into a film, you know, trying to fit a season's worth of Game of Thrones into two and a half hours you'd cut out so much that, but that's what they used to do that's that was until mm. very recently yep. as you've said that was the standard i mean uh just to very quickly give an example the bbc is currently adapting philip pullman's his dark materials there'll be three seasons of it and netflix has recently just finished uh the lemony snicket series of unfortunate events both of those were attempted as films the golden compass and a series of unfortunate events uh, with relative success in certain places because obviously budget and what they're doing visually but it's like mm. you're cramming a lot you're cramming a lot into this just mm. under two hours yeah. children's yeah. film here fucking hell and a lot of people obviously weren't happy with them because they weren't as nuanced and complex as they could have been hey everyone remember the Narnia films? oh yeah no <laughs> neither do I exactly and I think that's become especially I know we've touched on Game of Thrones a couple of times here but it is kind of the cultural touch point in the sure. last decade or so for this kind of stuff the big sweeping multi-book series that is then adapted into films you're like no 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 prestige television my friend this is what we do now since the era of the sopranos and the wire and deadwood and all that kind of the the hbo kind of big things and now everyone's doing it you, like you said you get amazon prime originals you get bbc stuff you get netflix exclusives you get hbo stuff you get NBC making their own shows. It's this, it's all branching out and now becoming the kind of new cable structure. And when I was thinking about this earlier, and again, talking with my friend uh, the other day, I was thinking like, well, what... Uh, no, in fact, I was talking to my parents the other day, in fact, talking about like what TV shows have been influential over the last few years. I think like, so many things are based on books or used to be a film that then turned into a TV show and all this kind of stuff. And I thought thinking earlier about some of my favorite books 
Yeah, they're big epic ones. I'd rather see a TV show. And you end up thinking, I don't want to see that as a film. And that becomes almost a negative thing, almost like a, oh, no, no, no. You couldn't do it justice in two hours and 20 minutes. How dare you? I need 15 hours (laughs) per season, please. I need 10 (laughs) hours per season. You know, you don't know. Eight episode miniseries. Good Omens on Amazon Prime is a good example mm, of that. Like mm, the, mm. American Gods, the recent adaptation of that as well. Yeah. Like they're taking these <coughs> huge American Gods is an enormous book and they've kind of stretched out over 10, 12 hours and it gives the time for the characters to develop, the characters to breathe, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think in a way, it does work better for certain things. It is certainly case by case basis. Yeah, I mean, we could still we can all agree, Annihilation and The Godfather are fantastic adaptations. Yeah, partly because you know, with the writer's consent, sort of thing. I mean, obviously, Mario mm. Puzo rewrote <laughs> the fucking Godfather, said, we "Won't worry about that. We won't worry about that. We'll put this into um, you know, a Godfather Part Two or the flashback stuff." But yeah, yeah, it's it it, it is or, true. Or you take Annihilation that you just mentioned, yes. where Alex Garland read the book once, never touched it again, mm. and then wrote the film. <laughs> yeah, it's just like yeah. I've interpreted. I mean, again, I'm a writer. I've write because it gets the thing. He's, he's an author. For, he's a novelist. So yeah, but it, it does it does come down to the fact that um, I think there's still a place. The problem, is, well, not the problem. The thing is that we've transitioned. Television has changed from the serialized. Everything has to go back to the status quo at the end of the episode so that the next time the audience will know to jump on, they won't feel like they're lost. They don't have to keep up. It's why also things like comedy cartoons became a big thing for kids rather than action cartoons, because actually there's a plot yet to follow, whereas there was just like laugh of the week kind of shit. But we've gone back now to the whole syndication doesn't matter. So very rare that the status quo at the end of the... If, if you had like an episode of Glow or Orange is the New Black or anything like that and it's like at the end of the episode everything's exactly the same you'd be so and fucking you can't angry. jump in at season three no. episode six no. be like who the fuck <laughs> are any of these people why why are they talking to each mm. other they don't they shouldn't what what is going on here mm. and, f- and then we've got that now reflected and we've touched upon this before and we yeah. will certainly touch on it again you've now got films doing the same thing and i know we talk about this all the time but the Marvel Cinematic Universe yes. is an example of taking the template from novels that then was the template for TV shows and has now become the template for building cinematic universes yes. in the cinema. Fucking hell, it's one big circle. Like, yeah, everything <laughs> comes back around. Mm. And obviously they're based on comics. It's slightly different that way. It's not a direct novel adaptation. But the the principles are still there and the structure is still there for going from, like you said, you can watch Blade 1 and Blade 2 and Blade 3 mostly on their own and not really miss out too much. You miss out on some contexts, and but like we talked about it in the episode before, like Whistler just comes back for no reason in 2 and that's just kind yeah. of never talked about and all this kind of stuff. And it wasn't until kind of the, the eve of the bigger franchises that we've had over the last decade, just over the last decade mm-hmm. or so. And of course the obvious one is the MCU where it all it all matters and you actually get more context you, we talked about endgame before having like go back and watch thor dark world I'm like no 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 <laughs> i'm i'm good thank you but here's that little bit from dark world from a different perspective mm-hmm. going back to different perspectives mm-hmm. and stuff you do the time travel thing and you play it from different angles and you see that oh this is actually <laughs> you happening you back to the future to it <laughs> you back to the future to it yeah and you see like the different old cgi hulk clip bouncing back he's like it was a difficult time we we don't talk about that <laughs> and they can literally play on that now and that only works if you have the context from you know seven years prior in the avengers and tv shows have been doing that 
and TV shows based on novels have been doing that, and now we're getting film series that do the same thing. And uh, probably the most obvious example outside of the MCU, the direct long series novels to long series films, mm. and we've, again, touched on it earlier, Harry Potter mm. is the big one. Like seven long-running novels to then eight films. It's a It's a big project, and... I wonder if they came out now, they might think about doing it as a TV show. Oh, most Granted, definitely. There's, most there's definitely. budgets and mm. stuff and all that kind of thing to consider, but it's it's an interesting thing. I wonder if that was kind of the perfect time for those films to come out to coincide with the release of those books and all that kind of stuff, and it was all this kind of perfect storm that allowed those films to happen and make so much money like they did. Well, let's get these. It's, it, it's, people will follow the money. It's where is the money going? If the money happens to be going TV, they'll funnel into TV. Mm. Mm. And it's it's fascinating because obviously we kind of we talk about novels and literature as if they're this kind of uh, monolithic thing from whence all ideas spring, but <laughs> they are equally as affected by the trends in culture as everything else. And yeah. so I bet there's a lot of people now who are writing novels who are thinking, "Oh, this would make a great ten-part miniseries on HBO." You know, uh, and often, you know, you can point at those people and be like, well, you're being kind of mercenary. You know, it's the kind of people who um, 15 years ago were like, I'm going to make a comic book just because I want it to be ad- turned into a film adaptation. Yeah. Uh, hello, Ma- hello, Mark. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Who, ba- um, who basically just writes screenplays and then gets a comic book artist to draw yes, it and then it's like very talented no i've just sold, sold sold them off to someone else oh here's like one of the best world's best comic book artists just just do me some just do me some panels we'll be fine we've yeah. already sold it we've sold it before the comic book has even been published but it's interesting to look at things like you know we talk about how you know uh, a book series allows you to build up this you know coherent universe and follow people across you know huge tracks of time but you can also look at something like james bond where bond doesn't really change from book to book mm-hmm. um and similarly in the films there's very little sense of continuity you don't you don't have to watch the james bond films in order particularly apart from until recently where we got more used to the idea of continuity between movies so oftentimes you know there'll be authors who are writing to suit the adaptation style of the day and you know back in the the 60s and 70s that was just like well you know uh if it's a really thick book we might make it into a you know tv series but that's pretty rare usually it'll get turned into a film you know and that's much and that had the prestige surrounding it as well because people you know oh well literature is the highest form of art you know apart from you know opera Mm. or something you know but (laughs) uh, but if it if it has to be turned into something for the popular folk i suppose film is good enough yeah gone with the wind and dr zhivago and stuff were huge books and they were huge films you had the epic movie translated from that because it was the whole we're going to make something big yeah the thing that interests me about the adaptation um is we actually touched on this with our shakespearean thing where you can effectively appreciate that the the core of the story the thing that really drives people and makes brings them into it is the story and the relatable emotion they're key yes okay the actual you know the setting oh it's on a boat uh, oh it's 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 in a a palace in france in the th- in the 1400s and like, oh okay fine oh it's it's set in you know contemporary tokyo whatever sometimes you can just say yeah 
I think this works better though if it's set in a Russian dynasty sort of setting. It's like, oh, I really wouldn't have thought that. I think this would work much better if it was set in South Africa in 1985. It's like, mm. okay. Um, and sometimes you can just get the rights to certain things and say, cool, I'm going to take your book. I'm taking everything in there. The story's there, the character's there, the development's there, but I'm shifting it. Mm. And that's when people say, wait, this is based on this? And then they go and watch it. And it has a whole new perspective to it, except the fact that it's the exact same thing. Um, the one that jumps up to mind immediately is, is Apocalypse Now, which is uh, Comrade's book, uh, Heart of Darkness. Same sort of principle about, you know, white people in places they shouldn't be um, <laughs> and taking over like they're fucking gods. Um, and, and, the, and the trauma there within. <laughs> precisely. And yeah. uh, obviously it transposes uh, Africa and, 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 and takes it to um, Southeast Asia and uh, to the sort of Vietnam War and things. And it makes it more relatable to that contemporary audience. Yes, okay, you could do a thing on a tram steamer and it'd be set in, you know, in Africa in the Congo and things, and it'd be like, oh, well, here we go, we're going to tell the story. But it would alienate certain listeners, people, again, it's the, what Tim said earlier about the nature of, is it a success? Will it people go and see this? You'll have a very specific niche of people who see it. It's like, oh, this is my thing. It's my, I'm the demographic for this. I would love to see that kind of story. And other people, you have to almost trick them into seeing it and say, no, 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 come with us. We're going to teach you how about a thing. We're going to talk about Vietnam. Like, oh, cool. But actually, we're just going to do Heart of Darkness. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we t we talked in our Shakespeare adaptation episode mm. about stuff like Ten Things I Hate About You," mm. and arguably that trend of you know we're going to take a, a a play or a classic novel and turn it into a teen film was kickstarted by Clueless, which was an adaptation of Emma, which was yeah. really great, and you know took all of the the interpersonal plots and the emotional beats of of Emma and turned it into something mm -hmm. in a completely different setting, and I think. It's it's become a sort sort of ideas farm in terms of looking at stuff that's in the public domain. Yes, um, because that way studios don't have to pay for rights, there and they can just be like, "Well, we've got the basic like. beats of a plot here. And we know it's popular. <laughs> now we just need to pay a screenwriter to like turn it into something that kids today will see, uh, and uh, and then you get stuff like." dozens and dozens of robin hood adaptations and oh, stuff like that God. it's either something that's a loving tribute because someone's obsessed with the material or it's a bastardization which again for adaptations is almost always the same thing we happen to have the rights let's make a thing and you're like really because nobody wants this well we'll just jazz it up in a different way and they will want it the, the one again I, I i come back to is um sarah waters now i've i've read a few of her books because i was looking at a, a at a bookshop when the time when her career started getting really big, basically. Well, she, she became well known at that point. It was Tipping the Velvet, I remember specifically, because I'm thinking, <laughs> I know what that means, that's funny. And, and uh, they were adapting for the BBC as a very straight, uh, well, straight funny, uh, as a very direct Victorian adaptation of the story. Similarly, it's about, it's about lady bits, ladies, about ladies. Really, um, really then I read Fingersmith. I enjoyed that, it was pretty good. It was a very sort of uh, interesting story of you know victorian upstairs downstairs kind of you know the no. have and have nots kind of thing and um intrigue and smart and again things we associate with the victorian era you know poverty and the well-offs and scandal and uh filth and that <laughs> oddly enough translates absolutely perfectly to the kind of mindset that south korea has at the minute 
Um, the big thing South Korea pushes at the minute, and if you look at like one of the major films they're producing, is always the have and have nots. It's almost always down to this divide of the wealthy and those who are feeling very left behind. And that's why, for example, Parasite felt like a very South Korean movie until the whole world saw it and said, oh no, we're, we're all kind of in the same boat, mate. We, we, we are there. <laughs> you're, so, you're just the ones who are willing to talk about it. Exactly. And so it was like, oh shit. And it has that relatability. And the same way that this story about Victorian London is then translated to Japanese occupied Korea. And again, it, it hits the exact same beats. It's just as relatable. I think it works better as a story because of that extra element of of the occupying force of another nation, that sort of thing. I think there's so many extra elements to it. So sometimes shifting what the original author had planned and seen and envisioned to a different perspective can bring so much. It can really heighten it. Sometimes it can also get lost in it up its own ass, obviously, because some people, people get too obsessed with the book. Some people get like, so I really want to get this conveyed. I really want to show you this. Other things like The Book Thief, for example. I remember that was there was so much buzz around The Book Thief because the film, I think Brian Percival directed it. And uh, it, the, the book is, 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 you know, stupidly well known and very, very popular from 2005, I think it is. And it's got a very central character who is very absent from the film. It's narrated by death. <laughs> <laughs> but it's set during World War II in Nazi Germany. The film doesn't have death narrating, weirdly enough. And it's it's just but the, the film feels very flat. It's like, oh, this is gonna be huge, it's gonna be the most amazing thing. It's gonna be this adaptation that's gonna change the world. I was in a film called Tulip Fever. That was an again a rights bidding war to get the book published because it was such a sorry, the book the into a film. And when they finally got it on screen, it's like, eh, yeah, it's all right. Because all the things that, that somehow the, the magic of the book was lost when it was confirmed and uh, made very concrete by the movie. All the decisions you're like, yeah, it doesn't really, doesn't kick in the same way. Uh, Stephen King novels are the same fucker with that as well, to be honest. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think there, there's few things more frustrating than being a big fan of a, a, a book and seeing it made into an adaptation and walking away and going they didn't know what this was about yeah <laughs> um obviously it's a graphic novel rather than a than a book but uh Zack Snyder's Watchmen Hello. which is so slavish in its attention to detail in yeah, some the, ways the comedian's and, the good guy right <laughs> and completely misses the point of the book in others um and uh yeah we won't get into that because i can see jack's face already turning into a kind of uh, uh, my eyebrows went raised by about four inches <laughs> yeah the, um the, the, the zs words <laughs> but um you also touched on an interesting thing there which is narration yeah which is obviously one of the tools that is most commonly used to bring something across from a book to a film because so much obviously about a book is the way is the language the way that it's written and a lot of that gets jettisoned you know if you've got a, a beautiful description of you know a, a landscape or whatever that really you know when you're reading it it takes your breath away and it completely transports you to this place with a film you just get that like that's just a shot of a landscape mm. oh here's and the establishing shot yeah, there you go. <laughs> and depending on how 
the filmmaker decides to approach that, it can just literally be like, okay, well, we'll pan across the landscape for three seconds and then we'll get down to the people talking because that's where the plot is. And it's like, but the the whole point of the novel is the glorious descriptions of these things. Mm. And but equally, like a lot of people view using a narrator as a as a crutch, and it can be. There are some films out there which use narrators, and you're just like, wow, this there are so many more subtle ways to bring across stuff like this but again it's 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 keying back into what what is when you are making an adaptation you are making decisions about what to keep what to change what to completely boot and the language of a book can be so important and trying to find a way to preserve that into the filmic form is very difficult mm. yeah entirely and i i think just to give it a very specific example, in terms of like voices and narrators and 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 the language, etc. And, and more importantly, the overriding choices the director makes when working with the script and saying, "Actually, I'm doing this." Uh, one that comes to mind is Layer Cake. I'm not going to spoil Ooh, Layer Cake yeah. here, but I'm going to highlight some things. In the book, the character is just the narrator. They talk away and they describe their own lives and they're talking the first person. So you don't necessarily need certain things in the film. It's played by Daniel Craig, both the film and the book very cleverly. end. this isn't necessarily a spoiler. It's just a thing. They end by revealing that they've never actually mentioned what the character's name is. He's just the narrator. He has no name. And it's like similar thing with Fight Club as well. Yeah, that's very, very key use, uh, for, especially when you're trying to reveal things of the plot. This is when I was like, oh, that's an interesting moment. Um, whereas there's a lot of humor in the book for Layer Cake, apparently, um, that was ditched very specifically. Almost every, I think, other than one or two minor, minor jokes in the film, which feel very heavy handedly, we're doing a joke now because when people are on a job, they do a little joke because that's how it eases tension before they go and put an iron on someone's chest, that kind of thing. They were removed because Matthew Vaughan had been the producer on Guy Ritchie's first couple of films and he didn't want it to be another lock, stock, another snatch. He, he wanted it to feel different. So the best way to do that, get rid of the humor, make this a f mostly serious movie. I think it was definitely the right choice ultimately, but it robs from the book. So people who love the comedy and the humor in the book are like, you've left out a lot of the sort of, you know, the charm and the nuance and the personality to this. It's like, yeah, but I didn't want it to sound like something else I've done before. That's not what this book is, your penis. Yeah. <laughs> so that kind of, for lack of a better word, arrogance becomes the whole, this is more about my career and the statement I'm making and less about you and the story you're telling. And I think that's one thing as well, the hand, the hand that holds the pen in terms of like both cinema and the book, it's, you know, it, it changes to what you want to see. And at the end of the day, much as I hate to say this, but just, just, just to circle back for a second, talking about um, changing the, the setting. If you have two adaptations of the exact same story, and one is set in, I don't know, let's say Morocco. Uh, and the other version of a story is set in Belgium. If you present that as a movie with an all, you know, Moroccan cast or an all Belgian cast, you're going to get people going, oh, yeah, I don't want to watch that. Why? Well, I'm a massive fucking racist. Or alternatively, <laughs> nah, I just don't like Belgian people. And it's just like, right. <laughs> I don't want to read subtitles. Yeah. And it comes down to, you, would you be happy if this was set in Cambridge? Oh, I would actually, yes. So it's mm. like... There's that sort of like you're robbing yourself of a perspective, of an opinion, of a of a, a an alternative version 
of this story. And yet at the same time, you're still getting the story itself. And it's just, how do you market it? And that's where you get from the idea of the good adaptation to the bad adaptation. So it's like, in the book, this character is this. But we didn't want to do that because it might test badly with audiences. You know, right, okay. And I find that monumentally fucking frustrating and, and very limiting and damaging for cinema personally. But um, the, the, the film book relationship has always been a rocky one. And there'll always be things that have, have either sat on studios that they, they bought up immediately and never done anything with it. Or they bought up immediately and said, get this made as fast as possible. Like um, One Foot of the Cuckoo's Nest. That was bought up by a very young Michael Douglas for some reason. He, hmm. he has the rights to it and therefore he made it as a film, obviously with Jack Nicholson and things like that. And you think, really? It's like, well, yeah, his dad's Kirk Douglas. They come from, he's their money. <laughs> of course, he's just go, oh, I like this book. I'll buy it. And, but other times they're like, <laughs> we'll buy this book. Why? Because we don't want other studios making it. We'll get around to it at some point. Yeah. And then, oh, but that's going to expire. I'll just chuck anybody on it. It'd be fine. And you make a piece of shit adaptation and think, eh, well, what's the fucking point in having it then? And that happens all too often. And it's so fucking irritating. It shouldn't be the end. That's why, not to tie it back yeah. to the MC, why Fantastic Four was in such limbo for so exactly. long. Exactly. Exactly. Because Fox kept trying to retain the rights so it would just churn out a new one and be like, see? Yeah. See? Active franchise. But this is, this is a sort of keynote here we move on to the next point and this is the bookseller in me shouting out the film uh, just film everything film buff film maker film fan in me a novel's end game shouldn't be a movie it shouldn't be no. oh that would be good as a film it's like no no no. it's already in its perfect form this is what it this is standalone by itself yes it doesn't yeah. need to mm. be made to... it would be nice sometimes to see an alternate version of things um in the same way it'd be nice to see a concrete thing in your head, but unless, unless you're making it yourself, unless you say, I don't see it that way, I wouldn't pick that bit. I would have dropped this part of the story. I think this is superfluous. Unless you're doing it, you are having that control yourself, which is very, very, very rare, then you're going to set yourself up with a disappointment. Just stay with the book. Other things we can't resist. Other things we're like, I desperately want to see this. Speaking of which, very briefly, <laughs> um, does anything jump to mind for you guys that you've read in the past and thought, I would fucking love to see a film of this? If only to share it. There's one that leaps to mind to me, but I'm going to save it because it relates to one of my picks. Ooh. There's a little tease for you. Okay, okay. Jack, what about you? Uh, Ready Player One, obviously. Classic. <laughs> and you got your wish fucking come true. And you got Ready Player Two on the horizon, son. It's just coming right up. Uh, you, we? wanted, you wanted that... that extensive scene where they just recreate the entirety of war games i'd love to i'd love to watch lists of pop culture references rather than read lists of pop culture references <laughs> for, for fans sorry. we're yeah. being oh, sorry for fans new people uh to the podcast we're being sarcastic we do not care for that film or those books um i have read the book and seen the film i do not approve of either one <laughs> for the record mm. it's fine if you do don't care yeah, Evans, you Evans do case. you Everyone's taste, I'm not, you know, shitting on you and your opinion or whatever, but not to my taste, not to my, uh, yeah. Hmm. Go, go Google Ernest Klein and some of his poetry, if you don't <laughs> Fucking poetry. As I will bring up How How dare every time. you put that curse upon people? <laughs> Do you want the poetry to be adapted into a... <laughs> oh, oh, oh. I mean, he does have a poem called Airwolf is Airwolf, oh, so oh, no, oh, no, I don't. God's sake. <laughs> Nothing springs to mind, like I said... My one of my favorite books, like duo books, books, 
uh, is Hyperion and the Fall of Hyperion by Dan Simmons, which is this huge like ep- sci-fi fantasy yes. epic kind of thing. And every time I think of it, it's like God. And the the right, it's been in development hell for to to take a phrase from us. We mentioned it fairly regularly on the show with bad sequels and stuff. It's been in development hell for like fifteen years, basically, and there is no way that could. I don't think you could make a functioning film out of a book that's this thick and a sequel that's like another eight nine hundred pages, whatever it is. It's gonna have to be a TV show, and I know I said that <laughs> earlier, but like you get those big epic things. I'm trying to think of something specific where I would like to see it as a film. Um, I actually mentioned this the other day on uh, on Instagram and various social media things because I was just it came to my head. I happen to be thinking about a book that I like a lot, and it, it would pro- again, it, in its best form, would be TV rather than cinema. But you could still do it, and it's it's one that's sort of been adapted multiple times on various levels. Nothing's ever really gained traction. Nothing's ever been received very well. Um, there's a few versions, but they're not. They don't do it justice, basically. And that is Master of Margarita, or The Master of Margarita, uh, by Mikhail Bulgakov. Uh, Bulgakov, I believe it's... it's ever says Bulgakov, but I think it's Bulgakov. Anyway, point is, it is a fantastic novel. I really love it. It's, it's very satirical, dark comedy sort of thing. And there's so much going on. And it's very simple, great messages to it. Uh, I was talking about this on Discord. And it's, just, it's essentially just uh, Bulgakov talking about his time writing under Stalin, basically, and how everything... He was, he was in Stalin's favour, so he wasn't, you know, fucking executed. But everything he produced was like, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's getting censored. That's the means of state. Boof. So he'd, like, burn a load of stuff. He, in fact, tried to burn this book. This book, however, didn't... He wrote it in the 30s, but it didn't come out properly until 20, 30 years after he was dead in the 60s. Obviously, after the Soviet Union was a very different place at that point. Um, and even then, the only full uncensored version in the seventies, and it's so fucking mad. It's so all over the places. It it literally opens with two a, a critic and a poet talking about um, the the philosophy of of if Christ was real, kind of thing. Uh, again, religion. Don't talk about that in Soviet Russia uh, and Stalinist mm-hmm. Russia, especially. Definitely. And not. then at the same time, the de- then the Satan turns up and says, "All right." And then <laughs> they make a little bet, and then one of them gets his head decapitated by a fucking a tram and then a cat with a gun runs around and lots of magic and there's a <laughs> witch and an author turns up and there's a succubus it's fucking crazy but the whole point is all the fantastical crazy elements is just meant to be saying i know this is a faustian story but you do realize as mad as this is like oh all these crazy fantastical things you're witnessing it's no crazier than what you're experiencing in, in under starlet it's like somebody writing today about Trump or Boris Johnson and saying, I know this sounds mad. Like, oh, what's the story about? It's about fairies and pixies. I know it seems silly and crazy, but you're believing a lot of bullshit this person's come out with, so I might as well believe this bullshit <laughs> as well. And the other subplot is about Jesus Christ and Pontius Pilate. And as it, but Christ is at Yeshua of Nazareth. He's a real person, but a healer, but not the kind of version that Christianity has. And Pontius Pilate really doesn't want to put him to death. But he's like, this isn't. I'm not going to kill this guy. He's, this is a bit, I don't know, the uprising. It, it's a lot of really interesting discussions. It could work as a film, but it is such a hard one. It's one of those ones that's like, it, it would take such a specific mind to adapt it specifically. So I'd love to see, I'd love to see someone, I, I, I still don't know who the appropriate director is for that. I don't know who the fitting is. That you do that sequelizes casting. 
you do the sequelizer's processing of a director, say, this person's vision, they know what they could bring to it. They could, you know, colorway elements don't work, narrow things down so a whole, you know, uh, 20 page discussion can be boiled down to these five points. We can get that, we can get that across quite well, that sort of thing. I think there's definitely something there, but for the last 50 fucking years, people have been trying. <laughs> so maybe one day, maybe I'll go around to it. <laughs> oh, there we go. There's a challenge. Mm. I'd have to shoot in Russia. <laughs> That'd be hard. <laughs> as long as your cast does in bit parts and take us with you, that's fine. Yeah. Or do a sequelizer's behind the scenes, like <laughs> making of documentary type thing. Be fine. Time for some ads, and as you probably already know if you're a regular listener, this week's episode is sponsored by Stitcher Premium. With Stitcher Premium, you can listen to some of your favourite shows completely ad-free, and you can also get access to Stitcher Originals, bonus episodes, comedy albums, and a whole lot more good content as well. Stitcher Premium is only $4.99 per month, or if you sign up for an annual subscription, you get $34.99 for 12 months. But wait, there's more. You can go to stitcher.com slash premium and use the code sequelizers and get 13 months. So you get an extra month on us for free just by using our code. And you can pay $34.99 for 13 months of premium podcast listening goodness. Our second ad this week comes from Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognisable ingredients, a disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new healthy snacking category. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo, to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better informed choices about their health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that is why we are teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% off or 15% off for military teachers, students, first responders, doctors and nurses, go to podgo.co slash kind. That's P-O-D-G-O dot C-O slash kind. Kind bar. Creating a kinder and healthier world. One act, one snack at a time. So, should we get on to our picks, gentlemen? Talk about some uh, some of our favourites, some interesting choices, some I... unusual ones. Thank, thank you, Spartacus. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it'd be a different. Uh, well, should we say. should we start with you then, Spartacus? Since you're so so enthusiastic, I'm Spartacus. Yeah, right. I have okay. So we have two separate choices. We wanted to say pick, pick two books that have been translated to film, and this the might have multiple adaptations. We're picking one specific adaptation, I, I assume, uh, of of each. Just a query, because I think I've asked these guys: Are all yours positive experiences, or are they just points you want to highlight? My, mine are <laughs> mine are more interesting. One's positive and one and one's more focused on the how interesting adaptation can be with shifting the narrative and, and okay, changing okay. a perspective of a particular story. So sure, that makes sense. Yeah, I'll get to that when I get to it. That's fair. That's fair. Mine's mine's probably very similar in that case. Then the, these particular ones leap out to me. So I was going to talk about like uh, various things, like a straight adaptation where it's almost exactly the same thing, and thinks, yeah, that's uh, that's good. I enjoyed that. But instead, I went for two different books which have both been adapted a few times. First one is going to be Little Women. So Louisa May Alcott, she wrote in two separate volumes, but it was finished and completed, I believe, by 1869. In the 2019 version, directed by Greta Gerwig, uh, who'd done Lady Bird and uh, 
she obviously acted in various things, but at that point, made ton of money, six Oscar incredibly critically acclaimed and yeah. stuff. Yeah, everyone loves it like ninety plus percent on Rotten Tomatoes. It's just like it's it's adored. It's great. I fucking love it. I think it's a fantastic <laughs> film. And the key point here is, and this is where we get to the nature of adaptation perspectives and so on and so forth, and the cement in the concrete and blah blah blah. Everything we've come to. I don't like the book. I love the <laughs> film, which is is fascinating to me because. It's the same story. Why wouldn't I like it? <laughs> what is it? What is it about this delivery? This particular story, this this particular expression of said story that makes me go, yes, now I get it. Because that is crucial. If you have a story read to you by your old granny in some old voices, like, oh, and then they went down the stairs, you have a great time listening to it. Whereas if your grumpy fucking uncle reads it, you think you've ruined the fucking story. Man. I don't hate the story. <laughs> it's it just it's experience. It's, it's, is you're, it? You're, is it a case of it being because for the record i have neither read the book nor seen any of the adaptations of little women i know almost nothing about that story or whatever i know as as little as you can being a man who hosts a film podcast (laughs) (laughs) but is it a case of like it takes some of the things that perhaps wouldn't have aged well from the 19th century original and turns it obviously it's, it's still a period piece obviously but the the lens that it's told through is clearly a, a 21st century lens. Is it the case of modernizing it and making it more palatable for you as a, as a man who exists in the 21st century? Like, would that make sense? Would that be like an explanation of why you find it more interesting than the the book? Weirdly enough, no, because oh. the book was well, already shut me right up. <laughs> no, 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 no. That's all right. It's because that's a very, very, very poignant point to make. But weirdly, no, because the book was already really quite forward at the time. It was right, right. quite bold. It inspired the character of Joe Marsh, inspired so many people because it was like, wow, this is a bold, confident woman who doesn't give a fuck, and she will speak her mind, and she is she's not bound by the the tropes and archetypes and expectations. I have of no her idea gender. what one of those is like. Not a clue. <laughs> but because it's from the eighteen uh, late eighteen hundreds, like you know. Uh, civil war era sort of stuff u.s civil war era sort of things mm. you know it's a very specific time and from a female author about women that doesn't talk down it's very relatable and i don't know the book never struck i don't know it's the, whether it's the prose or whatever it is but it never struck the right chord with me there's a 1990s version of the film which again is very 90s nothing wrong with it it's very well acted it's it's a good straight adaptation effectively then get on with it but I think for me personally, because there are always some things you you sort of drop by the side of the road, obviously, in an adaptation. We just talked about how you can't include everything. I think it's the way it's the narrative is presented. Take Jack, for example, somebody doesn't read the story. It is a very linear tale. They are very young, they grow up, shit happens, they get older, and uh, Sounds the, riveting, Matthew. Thank you. <laughs> it is. Uh, the, it, I've described most books. Um, <laughs> I've described the story of most people yeah. in history. True. And um, by the end of it, Joe has this sort of uh, final conclusion of, I've written what I've written. I may come back and finish it. I may not. We'll see how it goes, blah, blah. But I've done now. This is what I wanted to do. The film doesn't do that. The film finishes. Oh, interesting. The film has a, not only her book being finished, it has it being published and her owning, making money off it. It shows the success because the whole point is it's supposed to be a bit of a, a tale of 
uh, of Louisa May Alcott herself. It's part of her own relatable life stories. That's why it probably is so very relatable as a story. It's not a Lord of the Rings thing where she closes the book and it's called Little Women, is it? She like writes the book of Little kind Women. Kind of, kind oh, okay. of. Right, it right. really is. But it works really well. What's also nice about that as well is the visual representation. Every time you're in... Okay, so it starts off with a book-ended piece where Joe is older. She's moved out of the household she was in when she was a kid. And she's trying to make it in, in, uh, in New York and stuff as a publisher, as a, as an, as a writer. And of course, because she's a woman, no one has any fucking time for her. She writes extremely well, but, you know, editors don't want to give much time. They say, give her some girly stories, make it, make it like this. Mm, no, I don't like that. That kind of thing. She said, well, my work is my work. And she's been a writer since she was like, you know, a teenager. She's, she's always written plays with the family, have always performed, etc. In her contemporary life, there's very cool colours to it. It's very blue. All the hues are very... Uh, grim reality of adulthood, basically. They're very, it's, it's, it's very, uh, um, I say very cool temperatures, and it's, it's, just, it's just a bit grim, a bit glum. Everything flashback to her childhood has a very slight um, warmer tone to the whole thing. It's very straightforward. It's actually a really, really simple, easy thing that for some reason, a lot of male critics couldn't get behind or couldn't understand. Oh, it's really hard yeah. to find what's going on when. No, it's not. It's literally colour-coded for you, you fucking yeah. idiot. can't relate to them. <laughs> it's just a girl, isn't it? She just wanted... I don't understand. It's like, yeah, I bet you don't understand. But the point is, it's it's really well... It's well done. And that structure, that narrative bouncing all over the place and choosing to have certain things cross over is not necessarily in the book. That's the choice of Gerwig and, and, and the script here. And things like the character that Meryl Streep plays of Aunt March, she is heard of a lot in the book, but not really heard from in the book. She has a fucking parrot as well, which I'm glad they ditched. Um, <laughs> so she has a more prominent role in the film. She features because it's fucking Meryl Streep. She wants a meteor role. Obviously. Um, and there are just lots of things going on that flesh it out nicer. And it's the presentation of the story that appealed to me, but the performances were great. The direction was great. And I think that, again, the 90s adaptation wasn't necessarily bad. It was just very vanilla for me, um, which didn't rope me in. I felt very pushed away. Whereas the, I think the, the current state of Little Women is the most, well, it's a very appropriate film for our, for our time, shall we say, some 140 or 50 years after its publication. Yeah, I think I, I have not read the original book, but I have watched Little Women and it's it's a really great film. And I think I, I know some of the history behind the book, which makes it a very interesting version of adaptation, because essentially the first half of Little Women came out and like blew up was a was a huge sensation. Yes. And Louisa May Alcott got all these like letters of like, oh, you know, like, oh, I really hope um, Joe and. Uh, fuck what's his name Laurie, Laurie. Uh, end up together and etc etc and basically decided as she was writing it she was like no fuck the fans mm -hmm. uh, I'm gonna do what <laughs> I want to do partially because there was a there was a kind of an expectation from both the fans and just from society at the time like oh no all your women have to end up married off and she was like fine then I'm gonna marry off to this I'm gonna marry off my like most popular uh, character to this like weird older gentleman who <laughs> only shows up like in the final third of the book, um, and so the adaptation does a very clever thing where it presents that ending of oh everyone gets married and they're all a happy family. Mm. We've made a schoolhouse and, and we all live here and it's yeah yeah. But then it also it, it effectively makes it so that that ending is the ending that Joe within the text of the film 
has written as the ending of her story, mm-hmm. but she also has the ending where it's her getting her book published that is the real the the emotional kind of climax of the film is that yes, she has become yes. a successful author and you know even though she's had to tweak her life story to make it appealing to these publishers that she deals with in the film it's a, it's an incredible it's a slightly kind of metatextual but very clever way of dealing with a story where the the original author didn't get to end it the way she necessarily would have wanted to and right, so you're right. kind of taking what she probably would have wanted for as the ending for her main character and adding that while also maintaining the ending of the original text is a very, very clever... And I think I think uh, Oldcott was working with the confines of the time, and I think Gerwig is very much riling on that. And obviously it's a projection. You can never know if that's what the character, uh, the, sorry, the author wanted to do, but it's very likely obvious that it's the case. And to be able to have the, the film version, you can say, literally have the, the conversation between the editor and Joe, and him saying... Can we not just change this to give what the fan, what people want? And the start, the, when, at the start, we said it's good pages. Bring me more pages, and make sure that this character ends up married or dead, yeah. whichever's fine. And that's yeah. the kind of like that's that's the fate you'd get. And she's trying so hard to carve a niche, but also more importantly, just to get fucking paid. And <laughs> I think we can all all relate to that. But it's a great adaptation. It's really fucking good. And I, I, mm. I there are so few people who have said I was dissatisfied with what this has done, you've robbed me of this character. And again, the film very cleverly, one of the characters, uh, one of the sisters, I don't say who, because of spoiler reasons, is quite sick. And in the book, it's a long, slow collapse to death. In the film, it's just like, oh, oh, fuck. And the film even goes out of its way to give <laughs> you visual cues that everything's going to be okay. <laughs> and everything is not okay. <laughs> it's also got a lot of contemporary sensibilities and things, because... There's a scene where Joe and Laurie are at a fancy fucking dinner and Laurie's a spoiled little prick. They're, you know, just dancing outside. And in the traditional 90s version, it's obviously a classic little waltz, just enjoying themselves. In this version, it's it's like the Marie Antoinette, uh, Sophia Coppola kind of thing. It's like, well, what would we do? We thrash, motherfucker! It's like, there's no way that would happen to it. But it doesn't matter because it's, you know, it's the emotion, it's how it's presented. It's what, in the sense, in the sense... If you if you read a story set in the past, it says the characters dance. You picture your own fucking thing, whether it's break dancing or waltzing, whatever the fuck it is, um, and it's probably wrong anyway. So yeah, Little Women, I think is a brilliant thing because I've always maintained for the, you know for the last year since I've seen it, it's a film that made me love the story of a book that I didn't give a shit about, despite owning the book, which is the best thing an adaptation can do in my opinion. It can widen the fan base and go, maybe I should mm. go back and read it again. Maybe, I, maybe I'm missing. Maybe I wasn't the right age. Maybe I was just too arrogant. 20-year-old piece of shit. <laughs> maybe I'm now of the age of hubris. I can go, no, I get it now. I'll, I'll look into it. What about you, Tim? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick in, in, in a very similar boat with a, a kind of classic literary adaptation of <laughs> a, uh, a book that is probably seen as women's literature but is oh, yeah. but is actually you know for everyone and uh, an adaptation that did something not quite as interesting as what little women does mm. but took a different spin to what we had traditionally seen at the time which is the 2005 pride and prejudice which most people probably know as the kira knightley one <laughs> and i think it is a fascinating 
it's a, it's a really great film. I actually I rewatched it um ahead of of doing this this mm-hmm. episode and it's really really great. Her performance in it is is fantastic. Everyone is is incredibly strong in it. I think it's the the most interesting aspect of it because it's a fairly straightforward adaptation of of what happens in the novel is how it contrasts to a lot of the previous Jane Austen and Regency era adaptations that we had seen at that time because you know they became something we talk oh you know film was always seen as the kind of the ultimate place to uh, adapt stuff to uh, until recently but mm. In the in the nineties, there was there was basically a cottage industry of taking British like sort of eighteenth nineteenth century literature mm. and turning it into like BBC miniseries and occasionally other channels on on the UK networks. But 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 there were a lot around that period of very similar adaptations, generally aimed towards kind of mums. Essentially, was the audience for them. They all had a very specific look, which was largely driven by what BBC could afford <laughs> and basically the kind of popular prevailing taste, which was that, oh, OK, we're setting it in the past. These are all fancy people like it's not a grim and gritty, you know, sort of everyone's got teeth falling out. Yeah. you know and up to their elbows in shit <laughs> so let's have it be very fancy we want it to be in a way it's almost aspirational you know it's kind of it's disney princess but like it's kind of refracted through british colonial colonialism kind yeah. of thing. britain how it wants to be remembered rather than how it was pre-industrial you know very kind of fancy balls and all that kind of stuff yeah. um and so they had these this very specific look to them which was very clean and dainty and then the 2005 adaptation, I believe, was kind of nicknamed as like the Muddy Hem version. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Where it's it's that little bit... Obviously, there are still balls and fancy houses because those are essentially, you know, they're, they're kind of the, the tropes of Jane Austen. It roots it in a kind of reality. Like the first thing you see pretty much is Elizabeth Bennet kind of walking into a house and there's there's like geese waddling around and there's you know there's there is a sense of a little bit more of a grounding in reality you know and obviously it's it's a historical film it's not actually real reality because you know they're all glamorous hollywood people and nobody's got terrible terrible fucking teeth (laughs) (laughs) certainly for me as a teenager growing up at that time you know you see the the stuff playing on you know advertised on the tv channels and you go well it's not for me it's that little bit more of kind of verisimilitude that that lets you kind that let me kind of go okay let's let's give this a chance and you know obviously like pride and prejudice stood the test of time as a fantastic novel because it is it's a fantastic there's elements of satire in there it's a fantastic romance it's a kind of complex very much you know we talked about when we were talking about crouching tiger hidden dragon how like ang lee had come from doing Jane Austen adaptations and it's about mm. how love can find a way in very strictly controlled societies and expectations you know and that's that's all pride and prejudice is about but for me that kind of that little bit more griminess to it just kind of unlocks a whole other level because it reiterates how and it's a something that women touch on as important as well like how important 
and how much of an economic prospect marriage was, as well as being something about romantic love and and how much if you were holding out for romantic love that meant a certain element of rebellion which you know and i think if everyone's dressed in the most like perfect gowns all the time you kind of lose out on the oh no this this family's really fucked up if they don't get good matches for their marriage because they have no male heirs and and as soon as they like as soon as the father dies and he's getting on in years like they're basically virtually homeless they're kind of dependent on the on the charity of this guy who over the course of the novel they've sort of managed to slightly piss off and he's a bit of a wet sack anyway fantastically played by tom hollander who is hilarious as mr collins but i i I think it, it it roots that the slight bit of Perils probably the a wrong sense of word there, but the it, it gives it gives it stakes that I think a lot of previous adaptations kind of not really conveyed properly. I, I would say reality is relatability. To say someone's like, oh, we're awfully poor. It's like mm-hmm. you live in a big fucking house. What are you yeah. talking about? <laughs> but it's like, no, you don't you don't understand. We don't own anything. These are our fine clothes. You're seeing the finest version. And you have to do this or the family is destitute. And by destitute, yeah. I mean it's a different new type of exist. Not what you might think, but it's definitely going to be really bad for us. Um, and I think there's a very much a relatability. Always these things always come back. It's like, why are, this, why are these stories still popular? Because the moral of the story is basically, I won't do what you want, mum. <laughs> and for a lot of people, it's down to like, yeah, except you end up going down with somebody who's like, well, fine, maybe, maybe you did have a point but it was my point as well so yeah. <laughs> it's fine and you know what it doesn't matter if my dress is dirty because i'm tired and i'm horny <laughs> and it's 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 I, I i actually agree with you tim i i think the 2005 one was a very controversial thing at the time because you're right the bbc 1990s drama held so strong in people's minds i don't think there had been a film version of pride and prejudice since the 30s or 40s maybe was it really that long wow yeah seriously i don't i don't think so um, for feature films specifically, it's always been trying to like get out to different things. But more importantly, I'm pretty sure for the script, they changed the time period. Now, obviously, few people would know this because it's the past. The past for the people is the past. <laughs> but the bonnet sort of look, the bonnets and uh, ring curls and all the very specific look of the early 1800s was substituted with the more Napoleonic post-Napoleon Wars Wellington-style late 1800s just so it would have a different... It's like we're talking about layer cake. We're, 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 we change them into setting for 100 years. Why are you changing 100 years? Because people think of the other one. And it's like, yeah. oh, okay. And so that's right. So Tim said that, that you have not only a shift in... Uh, the locations are still the locations. British manor houses are still fucking British manor houses. Yeah. <laughs> Technology... Yes, it changed, but as far as our contemporary eyes are looking back, pff, horse and cart's still a horse and cart. Um, yeah. you know, as long as you're pre-industrial, there's, yeah, exactly. there's not going to be a much of a change between 100 years. Yeah, it's the clothes. And most of the time people don't really realise how the clothes change anyway. But then you get the 2005 element of realism to it. And as I say, that realism makes it more relatable. Because unlike this pristine, unknowable world on these evergreen fields mm. and these beautiful marble almost palatial houses and these 
perfect dresses and bonnets and ring per perfect hair. And it's like, oh, and these screeching fucking sisters. And it's like, you know, it feels like something that doesn't, it's not as, it's not nearly as relatable as it could be. And especially in a, in a book, you can get away with that because you just put your own self into it. You picture it in your own way. In a film or a TV series, like, oh, so yeah, I, th- I think it's a very interesting choice. And 2005 Pride and has been largely forgotten, I think, because people don't really talk about it much, don't, don't really bring it up very often. But mm. it, it was genuinely pretty damn good. Well, it's, it's interesting because, like, Keira Knightley has become kind of queen of the period drama. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think it's interesting because she has said kind of so much of it has been driven by her desire to to play more interesting characters and yes. that, that often means for a woman that you're playing period dramas rather than you know like because you know what films get made you know in the last 20 years have changed you know there's not the kind of 70s gritty dramas but also joe wright kind of got into a pattern of doing some interesting uh stuff with kind of adaptations and and literary adaptations um he did anna karenina which i haven't seen but did did some interesting things from what i've heard of of terms of like staging it like a play in certain yes, parts literally like yeah. it's a theater it's very interesting um it's it's pretty damn good i really enjoy it he also did atonement straight after this mm. another adaptation i really liked that book uh and i really liked that film i'm one of the few people who do but i, I really enjoy it again kieran knightley's in all of these mm. And there were changes made and stuff, and I thought it worked really, really well, personally. Benedict Cumberbatch plays a paedophile in it. Yeah. Everyone What's not that. to like? <laughs> Jack, you're going to be our third Regency-era... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a period piece, in a way, and it, uh, I'm going to spin it in a way to talk about women in film once again. Okay. And people are going to say, what the fuck, when I said this out of that? <laughs> Talking about a film from the year 2000. Mm-hmm. Talking about American Psycho. <laughs> and I said, Empowerment of Women. Jack, have you read that? <laughs> have you seen that film? What the fuck are you talking about? Well, yes. Because Bert Easton Ellis, problematic figure, shall we say? We've, sure. we've touched on many problematic figures on this show before. <laughs> I won't dwell on that too much. He's a controversial writer in general, just because mm-hmm. of the, the, the sex and the violence and the the treatment of women in the original novel and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And I think the film makes the book palatable, basically. I find the book unbearably boring, misogynistic, (laughs) unpleasant, and uncomfortable to read. That may be the point. A lot of people argue that is kind of the point from Ellis's point of view and to, to get you inside. And we talked talk about it before. Tends to be like that, yeah. The first person perspective of being in Patrick Bateman's head, this serial killer, this crazy yuppie nutter's head. Mm. But having it, the screenplay written and then the film directed by a woman coming into this hyper-masculine insane like analysis of toxic masculinity in the what 1980s and him being this kind of epitome of he doesn't give it he doesn't even value women as people they have the whole like huh women has a personality ha 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 and him and all his mates like laugh about mm-hmm. god forbid women have a personality and it twists it in a way where you actually somehow that film passed the Bechdel test and for those of you who don't know <laughs> 
That is, if two female characters have a conversation that is not about or with one of the male characters. Because there are some female characters in that, because we are outside of Bateman's head in certain circumstances in the film, whereas in the book, you are constantly seeing the, the entire world from his perspective. And there's moments where the female characters actually have, I don't know, maybe some agency, maybe some mm-hmm. thoughts outside of him and, and that isn't entirely focused on him. And you even get somebody, um, Christy, the, the sex worker, tries to like escape and run away from him and all that kind of stuff. You don't get that in the book because it's all focused on him and his perspective and to him no one gets away and all this kind of stuff and it's all very like twisted in his way. And it, it the book does the thing where you literally get pages and pages of descriptions of like the food. Oh my God, the business cards and the (laughs) there's caviar on toast points on the table and all this kind of stuff. It does that in the film and it's like, huh, everybody knows the business card scene with Christian Mm -hmm. Bale hamming it up. And then imagine like a hundred pages of that because the book is long Mm. and a lot of the book is emphasizing the consumerism and the capitalism of that time. And it's just him describing objects around him in a consumerist way. Right. Okay. I, I mean, I get, I get it. You could, you could do that in a few sentences, not in a whole rambling. Well, there's the caviar and the gold flecks in my champagne. And then this, and then he goes on and on about the food literally for like two and a half pages. I checked in the film. You get him talking about it. It, as we said, you can then translate that into a camera shot, and you mm-hmm. see like, wow, it's a lot of fancy fucking food. And then dialogue happens, and conversations happen. And you keep the story going, and the pace of the film is so much better than the pace of the books. Not only do you get the outside perspective of not constantly being in Bateman's head, and you get a different worldview and a different concept of, did any of this happen? Is he crazy? There's that whole debate, which is very controversial for fans of the book, which very much more implies that he really is a serial killer, whereas the film almost more implies that it's all in its head because it left out some crucial details and a few Mm. scenes that kind of imply that he is all real, kind of in a Blade Runner kind of way. Oh, is Deckard a replicant? It depends Mm. on which which version you watch. Is the unicorn scene in there? Then he's a replicant, (laughs) all that kind of stuff. (laughs) There's a scene in the, the book which people talk to him about him being a murderer and him being like famous and him having like a wanted poster and all this kind of stuff, which is not done in the film at all. Mm. And it's all just kind of laughed off. You're like, oh, well, he's crazy then. I was like, or is he? Because some people, the, the real estate agent is real weird with him as if Jared Leto's character never existed. And you're like, what? What the fuck is going on here? Like, is she in on it? Like, where is this going? What is this? And that that's... It's those little weird twists and weird things and shifting the perspective slightly outside of Bateman's head that I think make it a much more compelling and interesting story. And yeah, it is over in what two and two hours, just under two hours rather than 500 pages or whatever the book is. Yeah, I I haven't read American Psycho, but I've read Glamorama by uh, Ellis, which is, is in his weird little Patrick Bateman cinematic universe kind of thing because <laughs> it has it has some crossovers with that and rules of attraction but it that glamorama is very similar in that it is this relentless like you get these sections where it is just 
you are getting the kind of the consumerism and and in glamour armor it's kind of the celebrity yeah, worship yeah. hammered into you in these extended like passages you know a bit like how moby dick you just get fucking pages and pages of how to tie a knot um, oh, so much fucking <laughs> nautical lore about ports jesus um, but you know, and this is one of those things that adaptation can, it can find better ways. You know, obviously Ellis is doing that very intentionally, you know, and it is meant to get you into a certain mind frame as you're reading it. But it's the kind of thing that absolutely wouldn't, if you had a narrator doing it, it would just be nonsense. It would turn it into an art film kind of thing. Yeah. And I think Mary Harron, who directed it, made some really interesting choices just in terms of stuff like when when he's meeting with Willem Dafoe's character, the detective, she got she shot the scenes three ways. Yes. Where Willem Dafoe is clearly onto him, Willem Dafoe doesn't know what to make of him, and Willem Dafoe is completely clueless. So three different kind of same lines. Yeah. Uh, but but Dafoe giving a different reading of them each time, and then in the edit it mixes all of them up. Chopping them all together, yeah. Um, yeah. So that you never quite get the idea. And and that, again, puts you in Bateman's head in a very clever way that, you know, that, that only cinema can do. In the same way that we talked about how there are things that only books can do, there are things that only cinema can do. Use editing techniques as a perfect example of that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and, and it can do it much more efficiently than the book can. Which in other people's hands will be fucking schlocky and awful and really disjointed mm. but in this works very very well yeah so yeah that's my example of a an adaptation i think has used the medium it's given and tim you gave a perfect example there of how mary harron took editing techniques and filmmaking techniques filtered the the story and the characters through those ideas and those concepts and in my opinion improved on the original and made it more palatable and more interesting and a more dynamic interpretation of those characters in that setting. And don't worry, because American Psycho 2 is definitely on the grand list of you sequels <laughs> that we should fix. The, the Mila Kunis vehicle, you better believe that's on the fucking yeah. list. Directed by Morgan Freeman. No, not that Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Another Morgan Freeman. Because I read that and I was like, directed by Morgan Freeman? Who the fuck? Oh, my, oh no, it's a different guy, thank God. But yes, American Psycho 2 is on the list, folks, don't worry. Whoever gets to fix it has to cast the real Morgan Freeden to direct it. <laughs> I say well, the well, real uh, Morgan Freeman. Patrick Bateman was going around killing some guys. And that's... He crawled through a mile of shit. God. Um... <laughs> Background to you, Matt. Okay. So I mentioned Alexandre Dumas earlier. Back to fucking 1800s. 1844, I believe this book was completed. So... Alexandre Dumas uh, wrote a lot of novels, and they're all very well acclaimed and very, very good. One of my favorite novels of all fucking time is a boost. It is a huge <laughs> book. It is a heavy-ass tome, and it is The Count of Monte Cristo. I'll tell you why I love it. Vengeance. I love some revenge. <laughs> um, I love that revenge is pointless. But I love it. So it's a Napoleonic book, technically. It's set after the Napoleonic War, uh, while Napoleon's on in exile on Elba. And it's the story of this one man, Edmund Dantes. And he is arrested, randomly. Doesn't know why, just slobbed in prison. Stays there for a long time. Finally, uh, in prison, he meets a, a priest, an ab, uh, Abbe Farah. This, this uh, 
this um, holy monk, and he has been in prison for long, but he's tunneling out. They uh, have a lot of conversations. They start taking tunnels. They talk. Uh, he educates him, and the priest takes this just this just very common wide-eyed sailor and explains economics and language and all these things to him. And he basically gives him an education in prison and keeps him sane, basically. And he confesses the reason he was in prison, the reason to go to Chateau d'If, this prison uh, off, the, off the port. It's a real island, by the way, a real thing off, off, the, off of Marseille. And it's where, it's where they put these French prisoners that they don't want to talk about, things they're embarrassed <laughs> of. And uh, the friars and that, well, yeah, uh, the abbe's in there because he's... Uh, He's aware of a treasure, and he just won't tell them where it is. And he's just, you know, he's feigns ignorance. And he finally gives the location to to Edmond, and he gets out, and he uses the money, and all his learning, and all his knowledge, to wreak unholy revenge on every motherfucker. So he goes back to his life, and his friends and his old girlfriend have moved on, obviously, because they didn't know what happened to him, and he comes back as this new individual entirely. So he spends time at sea with pirates, basically, um, uh, and, you know, harvesting a trade. Finally, and he finally works his own way out, and and uh, he has so many disguises, and, and um, he ends up just making life hell for everybody and exposing everyone for what they are, and then at the end of the thing, he turns around and buys things, and it, it does the thing. Now, there have been a lot of adaptations of this book because it's huge. It's far too big for film. And the reason I want to talk about this particular version is because it makes very, very big sweeping changes. And I kind of love all of them. Now, this <laughs> is a book I love. I absolutely adore Count of Monte Cristo. I think it's fascinating. It's really good. But the way it's streamlined is fascinating. So, obviously, lots of characters are merged into one. Somebody's daughter is now somebody's wife. And it's like, what? It's, it's, it's very interesting. So, the key change to the 2002 adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo by director Kevin Reynolds. Kevin Reynolds of Robin Hood, Prince of, Fa uh, Prince of Thieves fame. And he also did Waterworld before uh, Kevin Costner kind of basically <laughs> took over that. But it, it's, it's actually a very solid adaptation. It's got Guy Pearce and Jim Caviezel and a very young Henry Cavill. And it's got Superman and Jesus. <laughs> you can't <laughs> go wrong. The same guy. Uh, yeah. And, you know, Wayland from <laughs> from Prometheus, <laughs> father. So I think you, I think you mean uh, Shinnok from Mortal Kombat. Oh, I'm so sorry. You are entirely <laughs> correct. Nice, Tim. Yes. So there's um, a lot of twists about uh, Albert Mondego's parentage. Fernand himself is really upgraded to the central antagonist, whereby he is not just a associates of Edmond Dantes, but he's like a childhood friend. They've come up together and he's always, you know, been envious of him because like, I shouldn't be envying you because I'm of a better station than you. And he basically steals his girlfriend. It's like, it's a more straightforward revenge story. And in that, and also it changes the end dramatically. Um, but in a way that's just as palatable. It's, it's, it's another version. It gets across the emotional core I mentioned earlier. The story is still there. Um, weirdly enough, there's another technical, technically, another version of this, which is Old Boy, basically. <laughs> Same thing. Man gets in prison, doesn't Pretty know Pretty much, why. yeah. Has to go out and find revenge, find some answers, realizes it was kind of maybe his own fault. <laughs> but um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's like, oh, can a man in prison learn to fight in prison? Can I apply that outside? Turns out yes, you can. Um, 
the uh, the nineties Mask of Zorro also very mm-hmm. similar. Takes a lot of uh, it does because it's a very it's a very good impetus for a story. It's a very good starting point. And Nebula's like it's a fascinating tale. And the thing is, this was printed at the time. It was serialized. So what happened was, uh, you know, Dumas was paid by the word basically. So he would write this long, epic, ongoing thing in in a, in a paper basically, and you'd get piecemeal bits of the story and then finally when he's compending uh compiling it as a novel he'd edit it refine it whittle it down so on and so forth make it work a bit sense oh, yeah. but so it was it made sense to have so many changes so many bits and pieces so many back and forth keep you on your hook and then you know drag it out as long as you fucking can like serialized television that kind of thing so for me being able to whittle down a 1000 odd page book to a 120 page script and still getting across all the key things. It's still really well shot, filmed, and acted. Uh, it's very funny. A lot of really interesting, straight... F- Again, like I mentioned earlier, what are the five or six key components we need to get out of this? Tell me the main story. T- tell me now, uh, you know, elevator pitch style. We only have this amount of time for you to tell me the whole fucking story. Ditch anything that doesn't matter. Anything that sort of circles about. What can we do? Okay. And then you end up things like, well, do we have a friend he can talk to? To save on all this fucking internal monologue. Not really. There's a guy called Jacopo. So who's Jacopo? He's just, he's just he's, he's like a very small character in and out and done. Right? Can we do something with him? Yeah, we can make him like his little loyal manservant. He's like a, like, mm-hmm. you know, an, a remnant of the pirate life who becomes a sort of like fun butler who can get like, like, I'll give him a stab, we'll go to Paris, dead, go, let's go, but we're off. And it's like, no, 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 I want him to feel pain. I felt 15 years, motherfucker. I want to, I want to, I want to see their suffering. And the thing is, because obviously it's the classic, I don't know, this man's been dead for a long time. People don't recognize him because he's got a beard. Um, and, um, you know, it's like, oh, well, we'll give him a, a sidekick, a Sancho, you know, that, that kind of thing, uh, to quote Don Quixote. And that's... Is it Lewis Guzman? It is Lewis Guzman, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And he's, he's quite fun in that. I, I, I think it's a good introduction point. It's a good, like, watch this, enjoy this, now go read the book. <laughs> rather than go read this 1,000 bo- word book, uh, 1,000 words, 1,000 page book, get really into it, get into all the characters, all the lore, all the stuff about, again, ports and Marseille and fishing and things and, and sailor life. But I think the refined version has a nice few sort of, shall we say, soap opera kind of twists that make sense. And they, but they're not, they don't feel hammy. They, they work. It bounces around Europe. You know, it's, it's, it's cool. It's, it's very very lavish in its set design and production and things like that. It's a really, it's a really good feature in that way. It's very pleasing visually. And then go back to this book and, and read through all the detail and what was originally there. Go, oh, I see. That's, you know, sometimes say, like, Oh, the book is always better. The book is better because you know, of course it is. But this is one of those examples of a film that does so much that's different. And I don't mean like the, the Joe March may or may not sort of, you know, finish her book, but in the film, she finishes, it gets published, and that's the real ending. It's like, no, 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 this takes huge things. This takes things and just just throws the fucking wind. Add this whole stuff that feels like, in a way, is kind of almost missing from the book. You think, yeah, that could have been nice if that was in there. So yeah, for, for me, The Count of Monte Cristo is the 2002 version. Another one from the 2000s, that because it's a period drama, 2000s kind of just got a bit swept away. We mentioned this in our Queen of the Damned episode. There is a time where in the 90s, these sort of like gothic horror and uh, lots of big p- prestige period drama sort of films were coming out. 
And then in the early 2000s, there were still remnants of those scripts and productions coming out in certain capacities, but they weren't getting the kind of attention that they were expected to get because you had a lot of really big spectacle pieces with the blockbusters in the forms of like, we have a blockbuster period film. What's that? Pirates of the Caribbean. Boom. Done. Mm -hmm. Get on board. You've got science fiction, fantasy, that kind of stuff. So yes, obviously big examples of these things working, but not to the extent that they could have had they found the right audience, in my opinion. Which could be you, dear listener. You. Good luck finding it, though. Fuck knows you find it. So, um, Timbles. Hello. What's your second pick? So my second pick, not a period piece. Ah. Unless you count the 2000s as a period now. Tim, that's but 20 was, years ago. I guess it well, is. Yeah. Yeah. It, was yeah. a, it was a contemporary piece at the time. Fair, fair. And it's, it's very much the kind of film now that doesn't really get made for the cinema. If it was made now, it would be a Netflix production and it wouldn't get promoted very much and it would probably vanish without a trace. But it happens to be an adaptation of my favourite writer, uh, who's Michael oh. Shabon, Wonder Boys, which I know that Jack had not even heard of before I put it in the notes. <laughs> I've, I've never heard of the film, the book, yeah. the writer, <laughs> name it all. So... It is essentially the, the, the plot of the film is it's centered around a university professor of creative writing. And it is kind of him getting into some misadventures while there's a literary festival going on, uh, a very kind of fancy literary festival going on at his university. He gets, he kind of takes uh, a student under his wing who's very troubled and is also trying to cope with the fact that. He his wife has just less left him, um, and the woman who he's having an affair with, who is the chancellor of the university, has just told him that she is pregnant, and it's it's kind of a a lightly comic, just kind of slightly shaggy dog kind of tale, of hey let's just watch these characters kind of go about their life for a bit and there's mm. a, there's there's not exactly you know we're talking about stakes with pride and prejudice it's not huge stakes in this it's he's he's essentially he's been working on his follow up novel he had kind of a big success that got him you know this teaching position and tenure and all these kind of accolades and stuff and he's been working on the his follow up for several years and his his editor is in town and and trying to get a sense of where he is with it for the first kind of third half of the 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 film you're like there's this kind of question hovering over of like oh is he completely blocked is he not written a word of it and then it mm. turns out that he's he's on page something like 2600 of it and he can't stop writing it um it's a setting and a kind of a mood of film that doesn't really there's not a huge amount of examples of it there's not there's not a lot of if university gets shown, especially in an American film, it tends to be like, oh, wacky fun, student Van Wilder, yeah, like that kind of university. Or back to Rules of Attraction again. <laughs> yeah. Speaking about yeah. this. And there's very, there's very few films that actually take a look at like, oh no, what's it like being an academic and being mm. part of this this very specific world uh, that they're in where like certain things can be hugely important to you that most mm. other people would just be like, why why do you care about that hmm. it's and you've sorry you've got a perspective there tim because you actually studied in america as well right yes yeah yeah um it's an incredibly charming film it's got a fantastic cast it's 
the main character is played by Michael Douglas, and he, at the point where I saw this film, I just pictured like he had come out of the nineties, having done Basic Instinct and Disclosure, and I guess the game would have been just before this or just after this. Mm, yeah, ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, his kind of uh, brand in Hollywood was just like, yeah, Michael Douglas, like he slicks back his hair and he's Gordon Gecko and he fucks people. Yeah, I'm a cop and, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. yeah, that kind of yeah, gross. And in this and in this film, he like he properly looks his age. He's got like a kind of scruffy three day stubble on. He's doddering around wearing like a pink dressing gown that he likes to write in. <laughs> And it's so completely him playing against type that, and it and it kind of reminds you like, oh no, this guy's a really good actor, and completely sells it. It's got Robert Downey Jr. kind of during his wilderness years where no one was employing him, mm. um, <laughs> and uh, Francis McDormand plays the the chancellor of the university that he's having an affair with, um, and Tobey Maguire is the kind of the young student he takes under his wing, and it's just a, it's a really great character study. It's. Uh, as I said, it's Michael Shaven, who's my favourite author. Mm. Um, it's not my favourite book of his. My favourite book of his is The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which is essentially a kind of story based around the birth of superhero comics and following oh, a pair of Jewish cousins who create a superhero and then kind of the various things that get that happen to them along the way. That is one of those books where I'm like, I don't think the, this feels unfilmable. Uh, this feels <laughs> like there there are certain things that you would have to boot to make it into a film. I'm not sure it would even work as a as a television series. So I'm I'm happy with that being not adapted. I've I've not read much of this stuff. I remember again, like in a bookshop, you see a few things and you have a chance mm. just to to read through stuff. I remember reading um, the Yiddish uh, Yiddish Policeman's Union. Yes, that's a very interesting. That, that that's something I think could easily be. Well, that is the one where where we said adaptations we wish had happened because uh... that got optioned by the Cohen brothers. At oh one shit! Point. Oh. I didn't realize that. And it would have. And it and it's such a note perfect fit for. Yeah, them. it is. Yeah, for for people who who haven't read it and probably most people haven't. <laughs> uh, it's it's essentially it's set in a kind of parallel timeline yeah. where rather than the Jewish people settling in Israel after. Um, World War Two, they settle in Alaska, which was one of the what? That plans. sounds like the most Cohen Brothers thing an, I've ever. Heard. It was an option site. It was. It was a legit option that was that was floated and almost got through. Really, they would be given yeah. territory in wow. in Alaska, and essentially, it's a hard boiled detective novel mm -hmm. set in kind of the two thousands in that in the in the world where that happened back in the nineteen forties. Yeah. Um, and so what it's. <laughs> set. so the the main character is jewish his like his partner is like has jewish heritage and native inuit heritage mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it gets into this kind of conspiracy about because the the period of time that has they've been allotted the land for basically is kind of coming to an end yeah very interesting the the cohen's would have like oh they've run amok with that being great they they would have done amazing work yeah. with it and that's that's the one where I'm like, oh, it's really gutted that that didn't happen. It feels like they almost made a serious man instead of that because it it, it kind of yeah, a lot of the Jewish community sort of stuff and things. Yeah, the Dibbuk and all that sort of stuff. Just to come back to one boys because I remember again I I remember the film coming out. I, we were discussing this beforehand. I thought 
Like, what about the maths? And think, no, Matt. It's like, what the fuck am I thinking about? I remember a conversation with a fellow critic at the time, and he was talking about Fountain City. Fountain City, by the way, is not a thing. It doesn't exist. But it, the author was working on this, uh, this really ambitious, huge magnum opus kind of project. He just spiraled out of control. He couldn't finish it. Uh, he just kept writing pages to it. And then, you know, all the parallels of life. It's like the Alcott thing where you take a lot of elements of your real life situation and just go, oh, I guess I'll just write about that. <laughs> I'll make myself the character. So yeah, when you see the, the you know, an elder projection of, uh, of the author in Michael Douglas and you go, oh, it's you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Especially if you see like photos of Shabon now, especially where he's got his big fucking beard and his hair and yes. glasses. And stuff. Oh yeah, like, yeah, yeah, you can yeah. definitely see. Yeah, it's like oh, that kind of kind of Michael Douglasy. I, I kind of, yeah. especially at that time, I can kind of see it. Again, I think this is the interesting thing. A lot of the ones we've highlighted are films that have been maybe not Little Women because it's still very new, but mm. films that kind of just made a big blip and then kind of faded away quite mm. substantially. Because I don't, again, I don't think. Hand on heart, I don't think a lot of people would say, it's a, you know, listening to this, like, oh, I know that book. Oh, I know that film. I don't think they know the author, the book, or the film, in my opinion. I believe for British viewers, I think it's on iPlayer at the moment and, and it's mm. on there for a substantial mm. chunk of time. So if you fancy, if it, it's, it's very gentle. Like, <laughs> it is a very uh, relaxed film. Yes. Which is kind of what we need right now. Yeah. You know, it's got a fun little uh, Alan Tudyk shows up for a very small bit part. Mm Sign me up. It's got Alan Tudyk in it. That's all I needed exactly. to know. <laughs> that's that's how I knew I'd hooked Jack in. Like ignore like the Robert Downey Jr. and this really compelling story of you know <laughs> this this author and Francis McDormand, who's one of my favorite actors and all this kind of stuff. No, 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 no. Alan Tudyk. Yep. Sign me up. <laughs> anyway, Jack, it's your final choice. You bring us to the end of the road. So to speak. Ah, see, we edited that, Tim. Uh, but I need to stop my cat. A pun was it, Tim? Ruining, it was definitely, <laughs> definitely a pun. It was a segue. Well, thank you for that segue, Tim, because you're ready to get incredibly, incredibly depressed <laughs> and just feel just like the most bleak thing you can possibly imagine. Because one of my favorite authors, and to touch on, you know, Michael Shabon that Tim just mentioned, Cormac McCarthy might be my favorite author ever. You miserable fuck. I know, right? <laughs> I know. He does stuff that I've not experienced any other author do until I You say he does stuff him. to you. He does stuff to <laughs> me. He makes me feel things, Matthew. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, Blood Meridian, I think, is a, a bit of a masterpiece. I absolutely love that, that book. And then going through to what I'm going to talk about now, which is the 2009 film the Road, adapted from the Cormac McCarthy book of the same name. One of those things where it, it only came out a few years after the book came out. I think the book, the book is 2006, I want to say. And like I said, the, the film came out in 2009. And I remember reading, I'd already gotten into Cormac McCarthy around about a similar sort of time. I was like 15, 16, 17, something like that. And it was just like mind blow for a, for a, teenager who hadn't really read that much outside of your typical fantasy and science fiction stuff reading this stuff where to, to put it into perspective the road has this 
just like lack of structure that happens towards the as as it becomes more and more bleak and the character the two main characters yes they're just called man and boy because they're not <laughs> or father and boy whatever they're called they're just not they're they're barely characters in their own story and that's on purpose and like punctuation stops happening speech marks and dialogue structure stops happening and it just becomes this just wall of text and i'm i'm assuming a lot of people are hearing me say it's like god that sounds fucking awful <laughs> but it's really interesting and if you're into it and you've read the previous like 100 pages and the next 100 pages are all just this wave of madness that he just deconstructs how a novel works in mm. front of your eyes it blew my fucking mind and then I saw the film, and I also loved the film in a completely different way. Mm. And obviously, the film can't do what that novel does in the same way without literally, like, I don't know, r- ripping up the, f- the film that it's made of, that it was <laughs> the actual physical print of the film and, and doing that kind of thing. But I think it does an amazing job of conveying the story and in particular the world that is built in that story and having you know Viggo Mortensen Cody Smith McPhee aforementioned cast in my Wolverine pitch there you go mm-hmm. um Charlie Theron shows up Robert mm. Duvall the aforementioned Guy Pierce Michael K Williams you've got this like powerhouse combination of actors and that's about it and then, and then nothing else for, for the other like ninety minutes of this film. And it's basically for those of you who don't know, this post incredibly bleak, dire, post-apocalyptic like extinction event has happened, and it is just these two survivors scavenging for scraps of food amidst these gangs of cannibals and nutters and just. Uh, incredible landscape shots and stuff like that and i think it really does a great job of turning what happens in the book and the the little sneaking bits of of plot and story and dialogue and the very little bits of dialogue that happen make you know i think mortensen in particular because he kind of carries the film because he kind of has to because he's often Mm. the Mm. only speaking role on screen or the only adult on screen for a lot of it you get this really powerful performance from him and really kind of haunting just emptiness from from the characters and it reflected in the landscape the the color palette that is like looks like Fallout 3 to translate it to my video game <laughs> friends yeah no it really does it it's really this does. gray brown greenish kind of Irradiated nightmare. <laughs> Irradiated nightmare. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. But no um, one's no one's singing fucking Johnny Guitar or whatever. Like <laughs> <Yeah>, Dink <laughs> spots. Yeah. There's no big silly super mutants or any uh, yeah 1950s pop songs or anything like that. Unfortunately, but it's just incredible landscape photography. Like the um the the DP for that film Javier and I'm I apologize Javier if you're listening. I doubt you are, but I'm about to butcher <laughs> your name. Aguera Sarobi. I think it's roughly how I would pronounce his name. Uh, He's a Spanish cinematographer Mm. and his work is just insane in that. And then he went on to work on Twilight and stuff. And I'm like, Mm. okay, you do you, Javier. Sure. Sure, Whatever. (laughs) Um, And I think 
the director Joe Hillcoat does an amazing job of, like I said, taking what little bits of dialogue you have in the book and turning it into the purposeful little moments that just work mm. nicely and just purposefully intersperse between different sections that lead to I guess that I was gonna say conclusion, but the lack of conclusion in that story that makes me love it so much. And it's obviously a very clear inspiration of one of my other favorite things, which is The Last of Us, which is this very, again, very bleak post-apocalyptic story of a, a, a man and sort of a child offspring. Again. A kid. With the, yeah, a kid. <laughs> Whether they're a biological one or not, it doesn't really matter in this case. That's kind of the point. And that story resonated so much with me and I think resonates again through, it's been, been very influential to stories since then. And for something that was published in like 2006 to be so influential and then go on to have a great film that I think lives up to and does something different to the film but, but carries on that legacy. I absolutely love both versions, almost equally. I, I, I do have to kind of pick the book because it's just so, it blew my mind so much as a teenager but I also absolutely adore the film. And I think a lot of people sleep on that film and don't give it enough credit from when it came out and how good it actually is and the performances in it and things like that. I agree. I, I love that film. It's traumatic and I don't want to watch it very often, but I do it, love it. Yeah. It's one of those, um, I put that alongside 12 years a slave where it's like, I, if I never watch that film again, I'm a happy man, but it's mm. kind of a masterpiece. And I, I am, I will, I never need to live through, you know, the traumas that those characters go through again. And I hope I never have to live through anything that comes even close <laughs> to what those characters go through. Yeah, exactly. I like John Hillcoat a lot being, uh, I was very much drawn in when he did um, The Proposition, mm, which is Australian yeah. Western and being Australian himself, you know, I like The Road. I like Lawless a lot. Blah, 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 blah. I like Lawless as well. Yeah. Yeah. Triple Nine is all right. And that's all I'll say on that. But I think, yeah, the visual styling of it is the production design so bleak, so awful. Javier Aguirre Saroba. That guy. That guy. Mm. That guy. He he is a very talented, dude. because uh, I uh, I remember a bit of a bit of a bust of a movie, uh, Goya's Ghosts. Uh, it's a Milos Foreman film. Um and he did the um he was DP on that as well. And the sea inside. Alejandro Amenabar film, which I fucking love. I adore that film. But he also went on, as, as Jack said, to his Twilight stuff. He also did Goosebumps and <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. It's like, there's so much range here. And we always and point like, out... That... And, and uh, Fright Night, a film yeah, yes. I actually kind of guilty pleasure love. Yeah. And <laughs> the like, Identity Thief, Warm Bodies. Mm -hmm. like, it's He's ridiculous. In a, so much stuff. And it's, to be able to craft something so, i mean again a lot of people say thor ragnarok is one of the better looking marvel films because it has an actual personality to it to be able to do that kind of stuff rather than just doing the same thing over and over and over and over i am very good at doing xyz it is very very impressive um but i think hillcoat's uh coming into it from a sort of that bleak australian style of thing that he did with the proposition that very very open endless landscape and uh the the, the, the bleak survivalism of it all I think it's great. It's a really hard film to recommend, though, because you are literally... And this is what I'm saying, like, oh, I really love Aronofsky movies. You should watch this. But just bear in <laughs> mind, I'm actually recommending a bad time for you. It's like saying, <laughs> do you know what would be really good as an experience? What's that? Putting some tacks in your shoe 
and then forgetting about <laughs> it. And then in the morning, you put your foot in the shower. Fuck it out! Ow! It's like, yeah, but that'll really alive. make you appreciate not having tax in your shoe <laughs> in the future. Yeah. And think like, God, I really underestimated how much I like not having stuff in my shoe. You really go like, God, these shoes are so comfortable now. And before you were saying, <laughs> oh, they're, you know, my, my toes hurt and just rub it against my heel. You'll think it's the most comfortable shoe in the world afterwards. <laughs> but it's the same shoe. I once celebrated New Year's Eve by doing a double bill of Requiem for a Dream and Blue Valentine. Holy fuck, me, fuck Tim. Tim. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... I respect the shit out of that. But also, <laughs> Tim, stop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are films that are... Okay, we always point this out. Somebody said to me, oh, films are about having a good time. Wrong. A film is an experience. Uh, it's yep. a story. It's a narrative. Whatever it is, it's there to tell and, you and, something. I think a lot of people do go in with that kind of... I mean, take like the Transformers franchise and why it's been... So, well, you just go in and switch your brain off and it's it's... You should feel new parts of your brain opening up I just, as you're no, watching I just want to. I don't really want to think about it. I just want to see... Like, yeah, I, big, just, I go in the booth and I have sex. Big frid- fridges, fridges full of cutlery punching each other. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I want to see. It's like, no, it's about having a connection. I press, with I press but, the button and I get the food pellet. Exactly. <laughs> the, the road and experiences like that are the polar opposite for me. And it's those... I, I've talked about a couple of films before where I've gone in with expectations or gone in completely blind and had a similar kind of experience. And I mentioned 12 Years a Slave. I think that film is a masterpiece. And I went in, obviously, with expectations with that, similar with The Road. And it just, yeah, lived up to my expectations. Mm. And it is the experience that I do re- I think I've watched it th- three times now. And at some point in the future, I'll watch it again. Maybe in a few years, maybe, I don't know. Maybe when I'm 40. I don't know. I'm, I'm going I'm to draw <laughs> 40th back. 40th birthday. Yeah. I'm going to draw back some strange uh, stuff here. There's an old thing, a phrase that was said by a friend of ours, Tim Matum, on a, on a different podcast years and years ago. Um, so if you think about Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, as a sexual experience, a really <laughs> cool, awesome sexual experience. I always do. And you're like, this is the best fun I've ever had, and I'm having such a connection, and I'm never going to get tired of this. The road is a really creepy room with a flashlight. You think, I don't know if you use a flashlight, I'm sure it'll be fine. And you put your dick in it, and it's full of spiders. (laughs) It's a (laughs) flashlight full of spiders. Now, it's horribly unpleasant. But sex is kind of still happening in a weird way. <laughs> Sexual action is happening. So in a way, you are getting an experience. And in a way, it's not pleasurable, but something's happening. And the worst part is, with something like the road, you can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> and you tell yeah. other people, hey, there's a room with a flashlight. You should check it out. Why? Don't worry about it. Just go in there. That's fine. <laughs> with this, and you come out and they just give you this horrible look. And they're like, why did you make me go in there? I don't know. Do you want to talk about it? Yeah, I want to fucking talk about it. God damn. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome for that horrible, horrible analogy. Yeah, I do not approve that analogy. <laughs> yes. I love that that's the note we're ending on, by the way. Yeah. Like, ready to get depressed? And Matt was like, you ain't seen nothing yet, motherfucker. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the Road is a miserable, miserable movie. And depending on where you are in your life and the things you've experienced, it can be much worse. For example, we've always talked about this. A film is a way that you can step into someone else's shoes. Any narrative, mm. any story, any song is about that. You know, it's about experiencing someone else's perspective. 
If it's a little too close to home to your own perspective, however, it becomes 10 times worse. So mm. I've watched films about kids being stolen or killed and the character goes, no, that's my only child. I've lost everything in the world. And I'm like, I don't have any kids. So I, I, I feel your pain because of acting, but I don't, I don't resonate in that kind of way because obviously it's, I, I empathize. And then one day when you have children, you go, I can't watch this anymore. And you end up finding mm. you and thinking when you get to a certain age, you start crying at different Disney films. And you're like, why am I crying at this? Why am I crying at almost every movie? Now what is I'm happening? Bambi's mum. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so the, the road, again, if I you... used to be Thumper. <laughs> I had a great fucking time. You're still Thumper to me, Tim. Oh, thank you. I got graphic. I did. <laughs> yeah, so so I think the road is a very, again, so for, I, 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 I recommend all of these movies. I think they're all fantastic. I think you should check them all out. Do not watch the road yet. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> Wait. Yeah. Wait until there's a vaccine at least. Yeah. Wait until the <laughs> pandemic is in the rearview mirror and you can look back on it. And even then we're like we're still in kind of post-apocalyptic times kind of now anyway, so mm. it's not people say oh, unless it's going to unless it's going to be like all those people who watch Contagion like in in oh, yeah, he, April. He number 1 on Netflix yeah. um, on like yeah. the first week of April, didn't it? Because or, or me we're in lockdown. Maybe sometimes you just need a good sad a, a cathartic despairing cry tim tim welcome to matthew makes his wife watch lady macbeth oh yeah we talked about that on yeah. outtakes before i, I think. think so yeah the idea yeah. that it's like well let's watch a film to make myself feel better so what did you watch fucking miserable movie why because i'm not them because <laughs> i've cried it all out now yeah. <laughs> oh dear well that is a hell of a note to end on gentlemen true just don't go and watch this incredibly depressing movie True. We talked about <laughs> being calm and happy and relaxed and excited and adventure and sorrow and the entire gamut of human emotion through the the mediums of both novels mm. and movies. Yeah. There we go. Nice little twist to make it positive there, Matt. Thank you very much. That's true. Well, if you have any suggestions for particularly interesting, particularly unique, particularly good adaptations from books to film, let us know. Hit us up on social media. We are sequelizers on everything. I am JLW Chambers on everything. If you want all of our contact details, links to our Discord, links to our shop, is sequelizers.com is the hub for all the possible things you could want from us in terms of anything you need, really, pretty much. If you want to join us in the Discord, there's always some post-show discussion going on in there. It's a fantastic little community of uh, listeners, and the three of us join in as well and chat about stuff. Whether that's the show, whether that's sports, whether that's politics, it's all happening in the Sequelizers Discord. So come and join us. It's a lot of fun. Matt, how can people reach you directly through the interwebs? Stogs, S-T-O-G-H-Z. You can go to the red right hand at Code.uk and read the reviews I've written. Obviously, there aren't many of them right now because we're in a weird, no film world. I know things are online, but it's not the same. Anyway cheesemint.com for the things that i make also on hold until the world starts <laughs> turning again tim if people want to be lifted if they want their spirits raised by joy and mirth where can they tap you they can they can come to me for some kind of uplifting spiritual experience on twitter uh, which nice. is not most people's experience of twitter but no. you know i try and provide a service uh i'm trivia underscore lad on twitter that's the best place to find me on the internet uh, and anything interesting i'm doing i will stick links to there well we'll be back next week with more interseason goodness 
in the meantime, you can go and check out, like I said, all of our social media, our Patreon, patreon.com slash sequelizers. There's plenty of bonus content if you haven't already caught up there. And until next week, thank you very much for listening, everybody. Give a hoot. Read a book. (laughs) There you go.